This podcast was recorded before the recent death of actor Anton Yelchin, and so that news will obviously not be mentioned during the discussion of his work in this movie. Thankfully, I don't think anyone made any of those comments that sound a lot worse after someone dies, like the story of Nick Meyer's last meeting with Gene Roddenberry. We'll take a look at Yelchin's death and the effect it'll have on the franchise in our discussion of Star Trek Beyond, which will be the first of our Star Trek episodes recorded after his death. Until then, enjoy the show. However, there is Starfleet Regulation 619. 619 states that any command officer who's emotionally compromised by the mission at hand must resign said command. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where, trust me, we're emotionally compromised. But we're not resigning from podcasting because of it. I am Glenn Butler, and we are back in the Star Trek film vault for Star Trek Eleven, otherwise known simply as Star Trek, where it all begins again, sort of. We'll get there. But first, I must introduce my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, when was the last time you were emotionally compromised? Probably when we watched this movie. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't invoke podcasting regulation 619. We'd be left with no host and no goddamn co-host to replace him. Yeah, we do. <laughs> also with us as our special guest this week is Mr. Greg Phillips, one of the hosts of the Hard Traveling Fanboys podcast, one of our sister shows on the newly established PTBN Pop podcast feed. Our new home for shows with the wide world of popular culture outside of wrestling and sports. Which is pretty much the premise I gave myself for this show before it became a bi-weekly Star Trek fancast. So, that's a nice vote of confidence. Uh, Greg, when was the last time you were emotionally compromised? Uh, probably about an hour and a half ago before I left work. <laughs> good answer, good answer. <laughs> Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys having me on, by the way. Uh, this is a cool moment for me. I, I listened to the uh, Insurrection cast just a few days ago, actually. So, Ah, excellent. Well, th thank you very much. That was, uh, that was a discussion that I kind of liked, as I've liked many of these discussions, actually. Yeah, it's always fun to talk. Uh, always fun to talk Star Trek, and what I appreciate is that you guys are so steeped in the knowledge, but you don't overwhelm the guests with your knowledge, which is cool. Oh, I dearly hope so. Yeah, I can think of few less interesting shows than host shows off their arcane trivia knowledge. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, for this movie, we are in 2009. 
the last Star Trek movie was Nemesis, as we examined on our last episode, in 2002. Enterprise went off the air in 2005, and the Star Trek franchise was D.E.D. dead. <laughs> until news came that there was a new movie coming. J.J. Abrams, the wunderkind of the moment, was helming it. And suddenly there was all this energy that started wrapping up around it. Uh, Greg, where are you coming from on Star Trek in terms of fandom, and what were you thinking about this movie as it approached? Uh, well, I grew up watching the original series on in syndication, obviously. I'm a child of the 80s, so uh, born in 84, so probably around three or four years old was when I first got exposed to Trek, and we, were watch- we would watch the original series... Uh, reruns uh, on the weekends, and then of course, th- you know, during the week we could catch the the syndicated version of Next Generation. So I grew up with a steady diet of both the original series and the Next Generation. But I also got the movies for the original series. My dad and uh, I would always enjoy going to the movies and catching those. And so I always became more attached to the original series characters, even though I loved Next Gen as well. And I watched all the next gen movies until until Nemesis. I skipped Nemesis, but um, good on you. <laughs> but I I, uh, I enjoyed. I, I love the original series. Love everything about it. Love the movies especially. Um, I'm even as Glenn can attest. Uh, I'm one of the few people, maybe not a few, but I will adamantly defend Star Trek Three until I'm in the grave. I think it's wonderful. I even like elements of Five, and so I'm a pretty big fan of the original series. But I had gotten out of Trek by the time 09 rolled around. Like, I, I skipped... Honestly, I skipped Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. And so my, my fandom was very cold and very distant by the time 2009 hit. I also was never a Lost Watcher, so J.J. Abrams' name, per se, didn't mean much to me. But I remember being somewhat interested because they were bringing back the characters of Kirk and Spock, even though it wasn't going to be Shatner and, and Nimoy, per se. I was uh, I was interested in that because I love those characters. Just to me, of all the TV shows and movie series I've watched, I, I don't know many where the interactions between the characters are as strong as they are on Star Trek, the original series, and, and the movie series. Excellent, excellent. Um, I was kind of out of my fandom a little, too. I mean, I had read the novels for a while, but by 09, I think I had uh, stopped a lot of those. So... I remember like seeing news updates about the new movie because I, I would read, you know, blogs and such that were covering it, and it seemed that everybody on these sites, you know, on blogs and forums and everything, were a lot more excited for it than I was. My general feeling, as I can remember, is they're doing a new Star Trek movie. Cool. I'll see what it is. I hope it's good. You know, it, it's like when a sports team, I like drafts someone and I don't watch college sports. So it's just like, okay, hope they're good. <laughs> that was basically my attitude going into it. It was sort of a don't get your hopes up kind of attitude. Because the last several Star Trek products to have come down the pike were decidedly not to my tastes. And apparently not to many other people's tastes either because they basically killed off the franchise in the first half of the 2000s. After Voyager, which I didn't really get into, after Enterprise, which I never got into, after Nemesis, which I didn't like at all, after this, like, 
dark period from 05 after Enterprise went off the air. When they started rumors of the new movie, I very decidedly took a sort of, okay, let's see what it is. Maybe it won't be that good. Maybe it will be good, but I'm not going to get emotionally invested in it. I am not going to get my hopes up just so that I can be disappointed in it. I'll go see what it is, but I'm not getting too invested in this thing. Because who knows what the hell it's going to wind up being. Yeah, I think that's a, that's actually a good point because I, I was going in it in the same way. Like I was excited to see these characters again, but I was not expecting much. Like Even when the trailers hit... I wasn't expecting very much. I was like, you know, it's. It, I, I didn't have faith that these characters could be reproduced in a way that didn't feel like imitations of the previous actors, and not just imitations, but bad imitations. So I was, I was, a, I was keeping my expectations low going in because I didn't know what to expect because of the same reasons you mentioned. Because my fandom hadn't just died off a little bit, but it had been kind of killed off by how uninteresting i mean the the enterprise from what i saw it didn't seem like it was necessarily a bad show it just seemed like a terribly uninteresting show uninteresting i think is a very good word for it i thought it was really bland to the extent that i saw i was a sporadic watcher until the fourth season when they hired judith and garfield reeve stevens and started doing pure continuity porn fan service and that was at least watchable but (laughs) i never really found it interesting um i've just started revisiting voyager and it's you know okay but at the time i wasn't a fan and so i had been falling out of it there was a process for a long time i should point out that part of this process at least for me part of the process of falling out of it and going from where i was in 94 eagerly anticipating generations really excited to get to see generations and again in 96 eagerly anticipating the new movie, excited to see First Contact. Deep Space Nine every week, eagerly anticipating a new episode, excited to see a new episode. To where I was by the time this movie came out, where I was just like, eh, okay, I'll see it. Hopefully it'll be good. Part of that process, in addition to being disappointed by Voyager and disappointed by Enterprise and disappointed by Nemesis, a big part of that was also the Star Wars prequels. That, that was a big introduction to, yes, just because it's the same franchise doesn't necessarily mean it's any good. <laughs> yeah, that too. And I think an important part of the dynamic for me is that, uh, Greg, you and I are about the same age. I grew up in the 90s with Star Trek on TV every week with multiple series on the air for seven years with regular next-gen movies. Like, that was my childhood. That's what I was steeped in. And this movie was the first, like, authentic, new, mainline, mainstream Star Trek product of my adulthood. You know, I was 21 when Enterprise went off the air. I was nearly 21. You know, I was still in college. I hadn't had a bunch of life milestones. In, in 2009, for this movie... I, I was an adult, and I was considering things a little differently. Yeah, no, that's 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 true. Both of us were probably in the same in the same boat because I remember. I mean, I remember being ten years old when I think I was ten. Yeah, when Gen- when Generations came out, and that's probably even though Generations isn't my favorite Star Trek movie, that was the most excited I was for any of them because obviously it's the whole like fanboy thing of oh my god Kirk and Picard are finally going to interact how great is that going to be so 
Um, but it was a night and day from being an adult when this movie comes out. And it was almost like a fresh start for me as a Star Trek fan. Go in and just see if I like it and see if I'm a fan of what they do with these concepts. Yeah, and part of it for me also isn't just that I was excited for it throughout my childhood, but that I came to expect it. Just having so much of Star Trek throughout the 90s, it was a regular thing. It was a predictable thing. And it was something I really enjoyed. And so when it stopped, even though I hadn't really liked the last you know, several seasons of TV that had been produced, and even though I hadn't liked Nemesis, it was still a regular thing. Like, of course they're making Star Trek. They've been making Star Trek almost as long as I've been alive. You know, I was three when Next Gen premiered. So, you know, when it stopped, it was like, oh, well, I guess that isn't happening anymore. I've got to find something else to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. So for it to come back, they had to make a statement. Not only we're doing more Star Trek, but importantly, Star Trek is back. And Scott, I know you have a uh, nice diatribe lined up on the first very important way that they established that. I, I get far too emotionally invested. Speaking of emotional investment, <laughs> going into the movie, I had absolutely zero emotional investment because I didn't want to be disappointed again. In retrospective analysis, I get far too emotionally invested in the title card of this movie, which is after the Kelvin sequence. And the Kelvin sequence, we'll talk about the Kelvin sequence. Yes. I, I have my own emotional investment in that, which I believe you share with me. Mm-hmm. But the title card following the Kelvin sequence, which is like 30 seconds, if that. And this 30 seconds of no characters and no ships and nothing but the title and the logo for 30 seconds, this is really what delivers the message that Star Trek is back. And I say I get far too involved in this, and I fully admit maybe I'm far too involved in this, but I fucking love this title card. I won't even call it a title sequence. It's not long enough for that. Not enough stuff happens for that. It's just a title card. I put up the title. But it is perfect in every minor little detail. If you look at just the way they construct the title, they don't just like put the text up. The letters are like 3D. And they're not just like crappy, look, we can make 3D letters 3D. They're like deep. They're thick. They're heavy. They're like sort of golden colored, but not just gold. They're, they look like stone almost. They don't look like polished gold they look like ore they're they're heavy they're like rocks they're stone they're implacable they're the kind of thing that lasts for a thousand years and they're thick and they're heavy and they're substantial and you can see how thick they are because of the way they rotate the letters those are title letters that are not to be moved they won't be eroded. They won't be swept aside. They are heavy and substantial and permanent. And they do the same thing with the logo. And not only that, but they flash the logo so big, it doesn't fit on screen. You're seeing like barely a fraction of the logo across the movie screen. Even on the giant movie screen, when you go sit in the theater in front of a giant screen, This logo is ten times too big for the screen. And it's also 
like super heavy and thick and substantial. Every little tiny little design element of this title card is just designed with the explicit message this is Star Trek. Star Trek is back, and it is not going anywhere. And even though they didn't come out with another movie for another four years, it still felt like Star Trek was back, and it wasn't going anywhere. Partly because the movie was actually good, partly because the movie was actually successful, partly because it was enough to get you excited for the next one. But I think that message was delivered very well right up front with this title card. If you compare it to the Into the Darkness title card, they don't go to any of that effort. They don't have a logo ten times as big as your movie screen that you glimpse a part of on the Darkness title card. They don't bother with the 3D effects. They just flash up the title and graphics and take it down and that's it. They don't have to deliver the message they had to deliver with this title card. And then they play the theme. That brand new Michael G. Kino, the new Star Trek theme. And it's awesome. It's an awesome theme. It's not the fucking Batman theme that's two notes long. It's an actual honest-to-goodness movie theme. And it's awesome. And it's exciting. And it's uplifting. And they play it over this title card. It just... Everything about this title card sequence is just perfectly designed to deliver that message. To convince the audience that Star Trek is not just this thing that was popular 10 years ago and then sort of fell off the face of the earth and nobody cares about now. Star Trek is this thing that is as permanently fixed as the stones of Stonehenge. It is heavy and substantial and it's right here in front of you. And Star Trek is back and it will not be ignored. I have great, 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 great love for this title card. That is an excellent analysis of the symbolic value of that title card. That, this is this is what I love. This is the kind of passion that you can't get uh, in in everyday life. Talking about Star Trek, this is great. A, a title card, I love it. Another thing that contributes to that is they don't redesign the wheel. They didn't like come up with a fancy new logo. They didn't come up with a fancy new font to put the title in. That's the same font that the title was in in 1966. It's the same logo that William Shatner was wearing on his chest in 1966. And yeah. here it is, larger than life. Too big to fit on the larger than life movie screen. There is an important balancing act that this movie had to manage between bringing back the classic elements of the show and the older movies to an extent because that's what's expected and because a lot of that is what Star Trek is and updating it because it's 2009 and frankly a lot of the Star Trek future happened you know a, a lot of the technology of the original series happened because of the original series that's one of the yeah. things that fans like to celebrate a great deal and so there's a balance between having the markers of the original series in terms of design, in terms of casting and acting, in terms of story construction. There's a balance between bringing back classic elements and updating them. And that, that is something that I think is going to underline pretty much everything we talk about with this movie. 
Well, they do a lot. I don't know if we're getting into design elements now or you want to save it for later, but they do a lot, a lot, a lot, especially with the sounds, but also with some of the visual design elements. They do a lot to echo the original series, and I love even, it all. Even down to the phasers. Uh, yeah, to an extent. But first, let's talk about one of the really, really important elements of this movie because of the direction they decided to go in of going back to the original series and recasting all the characters. Let's talk in general terms a little bit about the casting of this movie and the balancing act they had to do there between trying to use the best actors for the roles of the original series and trying to use the best actors and actresses for the particular roles that are in the particular script for this movie. Greg, what do you think of the casting in this movie and the recasting of so many roles that so many people know so well? It was, in my opinion, if not the biggest, then certainly one of the two or three biggest challenges of this movie going in. And I got to be honest, I thought they nailed it. I, I really, it really surprised me how much I fell in love with this cast, um, actually seeing them on the big screen, because I doubted almost every one of them going into it. Like, the only ones that I didn't really doubt were uh, Simon Pegg and Zoe Saldana. I knew that they would do just fine in their roles, but I didn't really know much about Chris Pine. I'd seen Zachary Quinto on Heroes and, and thought he was okay, but nothing to write home about, really. I was blown away. I thought that they, for the most part, they really nailed the heart of these characters, especially the most important characters, uh, Kirk and Spock and Bones. Um, but but even someone like Simon Pegg, who just filled perfectly into the Scotty role, and Carl Urban as Bones, who there are times on the most recent rewatch where it kind of irked me how obvious he's doing a DeForest Kelly impression, but I still overall loved how much he embraced the character. And and Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto just just killed it as Kirk and Spock. I, I was I was very very happy with the way that they embraced the quirks of the original characters, like whether it be uh, Spock's speaking mannerisms, or because I know Quinto spent a lot of time with Leonard Nimoy, kind of talking about Spock's way of speaking and Spock's way of thinking and Spock's way even of standing with his hands behind his back, and Chris Pine the same way. I don't even know if it was intentional on his part, to echo some of the elements of Shatner, but it never got to the point of parody to me. So I, I was really happy with the cast. I actually kind of love the fact that Carl Urban is doing a D. Kelly impression because he's the only one doing an explicit impression. Yeah, I was going to say, it, work, it works because yeah. he's the only one doing it. Yeah, and he does a pretty damn good one. <laughs> he does, yeah. <laughs> Especially his interaction with Kirk is... is Fantastic. I mean, there's a lot you can get away with when you're good, frankly. That's the story of this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I basically agree with what Greg said. They absolutely nailed the recasting of the seven main original series roles. Just knocked it completely out of the park. A thousand percent better than anyone could have expected. Oh, I know everyone has their fan castings, and they have for 25 years or more, ever since Harv Bennett wanted to make a Starfleet Academy movie with Christian Slater or whoever. Oh, no. 
And, of course, once it was announced that they were making this movie and they were recasting the original characters, a billion different fan castings sprouted up and a billion different casting rumors came up. Like, anyone who was anyone was rumored to be somewhere in this movie. Gary Sinise as Dr. McCoy. Oh, I remember that one. Adrian Brody as Spock. This is like the fan casting that my friends and I would do in, like, sixth grade. Yeah, that is exactly yeah. what this is, is the fan casting. James McAvoy <laughs> as Scotty. It was so funny, because, like, all the fan casting that we did in sixth grade, were, it was just ridiculous things, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Colossus. <laughs> and, you know, and but, like, some of them came true, like Patrick Stewart as Professor X, and um, Kelsey Grammer as Beast, yeah, which happened in uh, the third X-Men movie. Daniel Day Kim as Sulu. Nichelle Nichols as Uhura's grandmother. <laughs> Tom Cruise as Chris Pike. Good goodness. Uh, sources reported that Philip Seymour Hoffman may have a role in the film, possibly as a doctor, but not McCoy. Now I want Philip Seymour Hoffman as Dr. Purry. Dr. Boyce. Dr. Boyce. He would work as Dr. Boyce. Yes. I mean, he would work as Dr. Perry. Philip Seymour Hoffman, we've had this discussion before, Greg. It is my opinion that Philip Seymour Hoffman could play literally any role. And, and do it really well. He'd be perfect. Like, you think... I mean, he, he kind of did. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I could definitely see him as Dr. Boyce. Actually, correct me if I'm wrong, Zach Quinto got the role of Spock basically through a popular fan casting. Really? Because when they announced the recasting, ever oh, there was a lot of people suggesting, oh, this person should play this character, and this person should play this character. And the popular choice of fan casting for a young Spock was Zachary Quinto. And it makes perfect sense. that, that I think you're right about that, because I, I remember that around the same time, because that was at the around the peak of Heroes' popularity. Because it's easy to forget now, but Heroes was obscenely popular at that time. It was um, for, like, a brief moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then I think that it was that during that brief heroes movement or whatever on television that that uh, that kind of thing happened, and th thank goodness it did because he he turned out to be great as Spock. <clears throat> oh yeah, and he's not doing a Leonard Nimoy impression; he's just sort of embodying the role and making a lot of the same acting choices that Leonard Nimoy did, and so it's not coming off as copying, but it's still kind of echoing the same thing. It's such a subtle thing that Zachary Quinto does in this movie. Yeah, that's a yeah. very subtle difference between Carl Urban basically trying to do a DeForest Kelly impression and Zachary Quinto who is not quite doing a Leonard Nimoy impression but he is playing the character in a lot of the same ways that Leonard Nimoy played the character. Yeah, I, I definitely, I like that word echo because I think it's you can see where the the portrayals are very are very similar and are in the same line of thinking, but they're not. It's not a parody or a satire or even just a direct mimicry of it. It's just two actors, like you said, Glenn, kind of uh, making the same choices with how they portray it. it. It's it's night and day from you look at something like Adam West Batman versus Michael Keaton Batman, two totally different things. This is completely different from that in that they're they're two. It's, it's literally the same character. They're not two different, distinct characters 
it's the same character played slightly differently, but along the same the same rail. One thing that Zachary Quinto definitely learned from Leonard Nimoy was how to play a supposedly emotionless character with emotion. Because that's one thing that I noticed in some other guest stars that played Vulcans, and one thing I actually criticized Kim Cattrall for in Star Trek VI, where she just sort of tried to sound breathy and aloof. Whereas Leonard Nimoy's original performance and Zachary Quinto's performance in this movie are heavily imbued with the emotions that the character is feeling in any particular scene, even though they're playing the scene as this character that's trying to not show any of those emotions. And that's a very difficult thing to maybe wrap your head around as an actor, of clearly showing the emotions the character is feeling while also showing the character not showing any of those emotions. And yeah. I think that's definitely something he must have learned from Nimoy, because he does it about as well as anyone other than Nimoy has ever done. Absolutely. And it, it, a lot of it's in the eyes. And I, I go back to the eyes a lot with, with great actors or great acting performances. His eyes tell you the emotion that's bubbling within, even as his words are betraying that. Even as his words sound like a robotic, you know, completely logical Vulcan, his eyes are telling you a totally different story. A story of somebody that's got something bubbling underneath that they want to release, but they can't. Yeah, that that is the essential conflict of Spock's character, right? It's something that... I don't know how many episodes of Toast were about, and something that was examined a little bit in the movies that we talked about previously, and it's something that's examined again here, is the struggle for control that is at the heart of all Vulcans, really, but especially Spock, since that's the biggest window we have into that. And to talk a little more generally about Spock and the other Vulcans in this movie, this movie is doing more with the emotionality of the Vulcans and pushing that to the forefront a little more than previous iterations of Star Trek had done. There is definitely a sense of Spock as an emotional being, and that is really at the core of his character. He's not portrayed or understood by any of the other characters, really, as an emotionless logic machine. You know, his emotional state isn't just important to him and important to the movie, it's important to the other characters. No, absolutely, yeah. That it's the, the, the way that they portray the contrast of the Vulcans as a whole and, and Spock as an individual, I wouldn't even call it necessarily an original portrayal. It's certainly an idea that probably, I would say, started with, with the original series, but it's something that we've seen in other mediums. To tie it back into comics, John Byrne kind of used that as his concept for what Krypton was, when he redesigned Superman in the mid '80s, he kind of, you know, the Kryptonians were a very cold and distant race, and so anyone that displayed emotion was considered uh, an outsider or, or a weakling. And um, that's that's something that we see in this movie, and it serves, in my opinion, anyway, as the emotional linchpin of the movie. I found myself more invested in Spock's development as the movie went along than anyone else, even Kirk, who I loved in the movie. But the movie was ultimately, for me, uh, as much as anything else, a story about Spock coming to terms with who he is. And a lot of the story developments that are taking place with Spock in this movie are more keyed into his emotionality. You know, his world gets destroyed. His mother gets killed slash fridged. He has a relationship now. 
you know, th these are all things that are affecting or growing out of his emotional core. Right, yeah, that, it's it's showing you exactly a, a different side of Spock, but I think a way that can engage people instantly that haven't had the back necessarily the backstory with Spock that those of us that watched the original series have. It's distilling a lot of the concepts and kind of amplifying them in the course of one movie. And I think that emotionality that he shows throughout really helps to ground the movie in terms of an, an emotional core that centers the movie between Kirk has it as well but with Spock you see it more viscerally with like you said the the fridging of his mother essentially the uh, destruction of his planet one of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually the one where he's picked on as a young Vulcan because the the Vulcan way of bullying is even in a weird way logical where they're just trying to like come up with the most scientific insults for him that's what I thought when I was watching that again the other day I was like wow Vulcan bullying is so formal <laughs> like they they approach him and, and announce their intention, you know? and then he, he almost approves it. He's like, "I suppose you're here to bully me." <laughs> yes, I suppose you're here to bully me. Yes, it is time for us to bully you. And so he just sort of goes, "Okay," and turns up and walks up to them. So they have a nice civil conversation where they commence bullying. <laughs> <laughs> Vulcan bullying is super formal in the Vulcan school amongst the Vulcan school children. Vulcan bullying is super formal when the bullies are running the academy as well. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> when 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 they're they're complimenting Spock, you've done so well getting into the academy. By the way, we're huge racists. <laughs> By the way. You know, in case you were wondering. You did very well. Dot 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 for someone of your ilk, or whatever they say. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wow, okay, thanks. Hey, you're pretty smart for a half-human. <laughs> that is one of Zachary Quinto's best moments in this movie, when he says to the Vulcan Science Academy board of crusty deans, or whatever they are, live long and prosper, and says it in a tone of voice that says, Fuck you, people. Yes. And, and, and the little music, the little musical cue that kicks in when he says that, that was a fist-pumping moment for me. Like, that was that was one of the first times in the film where I was like, yes, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was literally the note that I made. It's the closest thing a Vulcan has to a fist-pumping moment. <laughs> to move into Kirk for a moment, since you mentioned him, Greg, a few times... Uh, Chris Pine as Kirk, out of all of the recasting choices in this movie, is the one that I'm still a little iffy on. And I'm not sure if that's really because of Chris Pine himself. I think it probably isn't. Or if it's more the way that Kirk has been written in this movie and going forward, but we'll get there. Because he has great chemistry with Zachary Quinto. He has good chemistry with Leonard Nimoy. He has great chemistry with Simon Pegg. So, I suppose I can't really fault Chris Pine as an actor. I just... The way Kirk is written in this movie, I'm not sure if... Well, Kirk is written a lot closer to sort of the pop culture stereotype of original series Kirk than he is to the reality of original series Kirk. 
Yeah, exactly. There's much more of an emphasis on the cultural memory of what the Toast characters were. And the way that they do that with Kirk in this movie makes him basically just like every other white dude starring in an action movie. Where in he, some he, he has a few quips and he's always hitting on the ladies. And it, it there's just such an emphasis on womanizing, which, if you go back and watch the original series, isn't really what people think it was. He just feels like a frat boy dude bro through the movie. The way he's almost like lucking his way into important positions. Yeah, that's not inaccurate. You know, and I want to come down harder on it than I really do, because I like the movie. It, it's a fine enough movie, but I don't really like the way the star of the movie is written. I like the way that he is in every scene where he's not hitting on someone. <laughs> I mean, I think your main objection probably is the bar scene, because outside of that, I don't think it's very egregious in this movie. Oh god, the bar scene... And the bar scene, you can't object to that. But outside of that, I really love his character on the ship. I love his character in all of the Starfleet scenes. The one problem I have with his character is he's a little too cavalier in some of the Academy scenes, which I guess you could explain away. I just wish they'd written it a little better. Yeah, there are ways you can explain it away. I mean, that's that's why my general question, or the way I'd phrase my whole objection as a question, is whether the writing of Kirk's character in this movie is genuinely a result of the writers and producers thinking, what would Kirk be like if we took away his father so he didn't have an adequate male role model, so... He feels he has to overperform masculinity, maybe. What would Kirk be like in that circumstance? Versus, let's make Kirk like every other white dude hero of every other action movie. And I'm not quite sure, because the way those two things happen in this movie are so, so similar. I object to your claim that he is made like every other white dude hero in every other action movie. I, th I very much think he's sort of aligned to the cultural impression, the cultural misremembrance of Kirk. But in what way is Kirk's womanizing and cavalier attitude comparable to John McClane and Die Hard? In what way is it comparable to Jason Statham? I, I mean comparable action movies of the 21st century. Okay, in what way you know, is it comparable he's, he's, to Tobey Maguire and Spider-Man? His, his character journey in this movie is very much like so many people in so many superhero movies. You know, he, it's, it's a lot like Ant-Man, for one thing, where he's quipping the whole time and he's hitting on chicks, quote-unquote, and... He has to figure out how to use the thing that he's given. It's not a superpower, and it's not a super suit. It's the USS Enterprise. And he has to figure out how to use this in an efficacious enough manner and start to approach maturity enough to beat the villain. 
and it's done okay, but I'm not sure why I should be interested in seeing this story again. I mean, it's a new thing to do in Star Trek, but it is so cliched otherwise. I can see some of your complaints. I guess for me, I looked at it as them taking some characteristics that did exist in Kirk and amplifying them beyond what they were actually there for in the movies or the original series. Um, and I think the ones they chose to focus on were, were certainly the extreme, like, like Scott says, cultural stereotypes of Kirk. But I did think the movie was effective in showing how the loss of his father affected him and, and gave him the rough upbringing. And I thought the movie presented him in a fairly realistic manner in terms of somebody that's put in that role in the, the circumstances that he's brought up in. And over the course of the movie, his character journey, I th- I've you know, granted a little bit cliched, but I found it to be effective, and I especially found it to be effective in terms of how he portrayed Kirk, a guy who basically thinks that he knows all the answers to everything in the world, like a lot of people that you'll encounter. And by the end of the, by the middle of the movie, he learns that he doesn't know that much and has to um, find himself put in the situations at the end of the movie where he's forced to make the mature decisions and still maintain that edge to his personality. Because that's kind of what drew me to Kirk as a kid, was he stood out from a lot of the kind of milquetoast lead characters in TV shows where he had flaws and he had quirks in his personality that, that made him stand out. He wasn't afraid to, to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing in a given moment uh, if he thought it was the right thing in that given moment. So I enjoyed the characterization of Kirk, but I do understand where you're coming from. It's not exactly the most original portrayal in the world. I thought they did a relatively good job of extrapolating what sort of personality traits might be emphasized by his different upbringing in this Mm -hmm. history versus the original series, where his father is absent and he has this whatever character Greg Grunberg voiced, if he's supposed to be a stepfather or, like, an uncle or... I'm not sure it's ever precisely clear exactly what he's supposed to be, but he's clearly a male figure who's trying to exert some authority over Kirk when he's a child, and Kirk is rather strenuously rebelling against that authority in a way where he obviously didn't rebel against his father in the original history. He looked up to his father in the original history. He very obviously does not look up to Greg Grunberg in this movie. And so you see that sort of emphasis on his rebelliousness, that emphasis on his self-reliance, that emphasis on his, you don't know what you're talking about, I'm the only one I can trust, I'm the only one I'm going to believe has any ideas. And really his journey in this movie is... Can this other Kirk that's so rebellious and so contemptuous of relying on others and so used to trusting no one but himself, can this other Kirk grow to be the great leader we saw in the original series? That's his character journey in this movie. And that's how I would argue that it's different from the character journey of other dude bro heroes and other action movies is that we've seen the end result. We've seen the great starship captain and leader of his crew that he can be, that he was in the original series. And so 
that's what we're looking for in this character. And at first, you don't see much of it. You don't see much sign of what he could be. Somehow, Chris Pike sees it. Chris Pike tries to move him in that direction. Chris Pike tries to influence him towards what he knows he can be and what we all know he can be because we saw it in three seasons of the original series and seven movies. We saw what he we think he can be, but can this new Kirk be that? That's the question that this entire movie is trying to answer. And by the end, the audience is supposed to think, well, maybe he can that's one thing the movie does that I think is really welcome is the way that it uses Captain Pike. Because he was one character they could pull out of the original series who was still pretty much a blank slate. Mm-hmm. You know, he he had a couple episodes worth of characterization and actually, based on the latest trailers, it seems like a lot of Pike's characterization from the cage is now what Kirk is doing in Star Trek Beyond in terms of his self-doubts and dissatisfaction, maybe, with Starfleet. But we'll see how that shakes out. And I actually feel like, in the original series, Pike is sort of that mentor figure, but for Spock. Yeah. Because Spock is shown to have such a devotion to him. Well, Spock mm-hmm. is the one that actually served under him. Yeah, exactly. And, and spent years with him and developed a great deal, if you watch The Cage and then the rest of the series... And, and here, Pike is drafted as the mentor, the father figure that Greg Grunberg will never be for Kirk. I think that's a very interesting dynamic, because Pike is still a mentor to Spock in this. It's not like they've made him a mentor to Kirk instead of Spock. Spock still serves under him. Spock is his first officer. He is also a mentor to Spock. He's also somebody that Spock looks up to as an example of what to be as a Starfleet captain. But he is also a mentor to Kirk. So they're both looking to him in very different and yet very similar ways. Yeah, and he's probably, I would say, more of a hands-on mentor to Kirk because he has to put so much effort into it, whereas Spock... Yeah, well, Kirk Kirk needs so much work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing I have to mention, because I mentioned this on Twitter, and one of the things that, that came out of this movie for me is, again, tying it back to my to my love of comic books, uh, my friends and I were so convinced after this that Chris Pine was born to play Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern, for, for those who may not know, uh, because a lot of the characterizations they give Kirk in this movie are really more attuned to Hal Jordan even than they are to James Kirk, because Hal Jordan... Very similar stories, in fact. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering if this version of Kirk was influenced by Green Lantern, which was very popular in the comics at that time. And uh, Damon Lindelof, one of the producers, is a huge Green Lantern fan. And then later on, just last year, I think, they did a big Star Trek Green Lantern crossover series. Yeah, which I would love to read, actually. I'm waiting to get that, actually. I've heard, I've heard uh, mixed things, but uh, some people I know really like it. And that Hal Jordan dynamic, his father dies at an early age in basically a work-related accident where his plane crashes. Hal grows up, and that has this giant chip on his shoulder related to that. And over time, it's his time in the Green Lantern Corps, like Kirk and Starfleet, that matures him into a leader and somebody that is actually looked up to as a great man. He very much has to become that great man. He's not born into it the way that a lot of heroes are. Speaking of the sort of formative trauma for Kirk in this movie, the very beginning, the Kelvin sequence, 
is one that, Scott, you just mentioned before, kind of emotionally compromised us a little bit. Yes. And I'm not really sure what other people would have thought of this sequence. Greg, I'll ask you in a minute. But this movie came out about almost six months after our father died. And during that time, you're really, really sensitive to a lot of things. Like, basically any parent who died in any piece of media I was watching for the last many years, <laughs> you know, kind of kind of twigs you a little bit. And, and in this movie, even though, I mean, obviously it's not going to be anything like similar circumstances, you know? You know, George Kirk did not have cancer. You know, our dad did not make a big heroic sacrifice to save our lives. But watching it opening night, not knowing it was coming... Yeah. Especially not knowing it was coming, it, like, hit me. And you too, right? It hit me every time we saw it. And we saw this movie a lot. Yeah. Because as much trepidation as I had, as much emotional detachment as I had, as much as I was going into it, like, well, let's see what it is, maybe it'll be okay. Once it turned out to be really good, we went to see this movie a lot. Yeah, well, it was, it was kind of a lifeline for a little while. And then once we found out it was playing at the aquarium where they have the actual four-story tall IMAX screen, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit <laughs> later, but we went to see this movie a lot that summer, and every time we saw that opening sequence, it got me. Oh my gosh. Even now, even watching it yesterday. Yeah, yeah, watching it the other day for this podcast, I, I was still feeling it a little bit. Absolutely. Greg, what did you think about that whole sequence and uh, George Kirk's big sacrifice it was a big surprise first of all i didn't i didn't know that that was coming going into it and i didn't even as the scene was playing out i think i got the idea that that might be where it was heading but i don't think it ever really struck me even this last time rewatching it i'd actually forgotten that opening and the most recent time watching it and thank you guys for sharing that story because i can't exactly identify with what you guys are going through but I can only imagine, and it wasn't the same necessarily for me in that it didn't it didn't quite strike a, a, like a deep emotional chord with me. But what it did do was instantly connect me with the characters in this movie and the direction they were going in this movie, because it's a pretty bold step to start out a Star Trek movie that we think we know what we're getting because we're like, oh, it's just the early days of Kirk and Spock. And then from the opening moments of the film, you turn everything on its head. And you say, this is going to be, by necessity, a totally different Jim Kirk, a totally different Starfleet, a totally different uh, villain than we've seen. It really rocked. I mean, it was, a, it was a bold, innovative opening, and it set the course for the movie in a way that was really exciting. And it's, in some ways, it reminds me of the more recent openings to the James Bond movies, the ones that have had Daniel Craig in them, where it's been less less of the campy opening sequence and more of the really dramatic, visceral opening sequence that sets the stage for whatever the tone of the movie is. And I really thought this one got it off to a, to a start that was pretty exciting. The thing it does for me now is, even though it's been many years since then, because we're sitting there opening night and it was only about five months since Dad had died, this movie opened the end of May, if I remember correctly, right? Mother's Day. Yeah. Okay, so so it was yeah, it was about five months, a little under five months. And so even though it's been many years now, 
when every time I watch it now, I remember how emotionally raw I was then. Yeah. So even though if that movie came out this year, I could probably watch it and just watch it and go, oh, okay, there's the scene. But every time I see it now, it brings me straight back to where I was emotionally when I first saw it. Every time I see it, I think about, like you said, seeing it so many times because it came out on Mother's Day and our mother is the reason we were watching Star Trek. She was the fan since 1966. And, you know, we took her on Mother's Day and... Frankly, at that point, we needed to get out of the damn house sometimes, you know? <laughs> and and like I said, it was kind of a lifeline. It, it, you know, got us out of the house a couple of weeks. Hey, let's go see Star Trek again. You know, and it got us to drag mom out of the house because she needed a lot of help getting out of the house at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were both going to work at least. And, yeah, and that, that was, you know, for six months or so, she did not leave the house unless we were taking her somewhere. And we took her to Star Trek many, many times. And she liked this movie. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, I know there are fans out there that decry the reboot and decry the recasting and decry frat boy Kirk and decry the action emphasis and whatever, but she is the reason we became fans. She was the one that was sitting there in September 1966 watching the first episode. She's the one that's been a fan since the beginning, and she loved this movie. You know, it's so funny you guys say that because my dad had the same reaction and he's been watching since he was a kid in the 60s. And this movie is legitimately probably one of his five or ten favorite movies of all time. Like he adores this movie. And, I, and I, it was so weird because I love the movie myself, but he took, took to it in a way that I never expected. To this day, he still, every time it's on television... He will, he will turn off of whatever he's been watching, and he'll keep it on the channel if this movie's on. And I don't know, I've never asked him why that is, why he's so connected to this movie, but at the time when we talked about it, he just talked about how much fun it was to see these characters back and to see it in a very uh, high-profile action environment. And um, he loved the pacing of it. And, and so in a lot of ways, my dad and I bonded over this movie um, and I think that's a great testament to, you know, everybody's going to have different tastes in movies, but for each individual person, if a movie has that emotional connection to you, it doesn't matter if anybody else likes it or not. All that, ma all that matters is it's a movie that means a lot to you and your family, and I mean, that, that's, that was the case with us in this movie. One thing our mom said, and like I said, she had been a fan since day one, September 1966, uh, we often tell the story, I don't know if we've ever said this on the podcast before, but when our parents were dating, in the third season of Star Trek, when they moved it to 10pm Friday to finally try to kill it off because nobody's home watching television on Friday night, especially not the demographic Star Trek was popular with, when our parents were dating, my mother had like, like a midnight or 1am curfew, because she was still living with her parents at that point. And, you know, it was the 60s, so they still had curfews even though she was in her 20s. But she made Dad bring her home from dates three hours early so that she could watch Star Trek at 10 p.m. on Friday <laughs> night. And wow. our, so that's the fandom background that we were produced from. Our mother would make our father bring her home from a date three hours early so that she could be there in time to watch Star Trek, and our father is the guy that said, okay, fine, I'll see you tomorrow. 
Oh, God. Oh, God. He had it so bad for her. It was not even funny. Uh, I often steal the line. Uh, Dayton Ward is an author that writes a lot of Star Trek tie-in novels. And in his About the Author blurb at the back of the book, he has the line that, I've been a Star Trek fan since conception, parentheses, mine, not Trek's. I often steal that line. Yeah, yeah, my line sometimes is, you know, when did you first see Star Trek? Well, probably in the womb. <laughs> but th anyway, that was just for background. The thing our mother said when we were, went to see this movie in 2009, the comment she made is that this is the first movie about the original series characters that really feels like the original series. Because by the time they were making movies... The, even the first movie was 10 years after the show went off the air. The second movie was like 15 years after it first premiered. And as Glenn pointed out so often during this podcast series, all of the original series movies were about how they were all getting old. And that's not what the original series was about. The original series was about going out and fighting aliens and people trying to take over the ship and spores that made them fornicate with each other and all these other kinds of things. The original series was not about how they were all getting old. And so, to a certain extent, the movies were disconnected from the series in that very fundamental way. And this is the first time. You know, 40-some-odd years later, with a whole new cast and a whole new production team, completely divorced from the previous franchise, this is the first movie with the original series characters set at the time frame of the original series where they're all young and energetic and engaging and daring do and fist fighting with the aliens. And this is the first time they made an original series movie with the original series characters that had that verve that the original series had. Right, because the original series was often action-packed. It was colorful in a way that the movies never were, and it, and it had that sort of high energy that in a way the movies didn't because, you know, the characters were old, the actors were old, and so many of the themes in the movies were about aging and regret. This movie is about the fact that everyone's young. It's very consciously about the fact that everyone's young. It starts with Kirk being born and then explores the early childhood of Kirk and Spock and then follows up on them in school. So it, it, it's, it's very, very consciously about that in contrast to the other movies. And even in contrast to the TV show, to an extent, because, of course, the original series picks up in the midst of the five-year mission. Kirk is 30-something. They've all reached a place of maturity in their lives to one extent or another that they haven't quite yet in this movie. I thought of that when we were watching it the other day because I had just recently watched all those Avengers movies for the Captain America show. By all those, I mean the four that I watched. <laughs> um, but we never really saw an origin story for the original series. The first episode, day one, September 1966, Kirk was already the captain, they were already established, everyone was in their roles... You know, I think, you know, Chekhov didn't show up until later, and I think Uhura was kind of in and out in the first few episodes, but generally everyone was already there and already established in their roles, and even when those characters later came up, you didn't see them come on ship, you didn't see them integrate with the with the crew, they just sort of 
one episode, they're there and they're already integrated, they're already part of the team. The Next Generation pilot, we see that crew come together. Deep Space Nine pilot, we see that crew come together. Voyager pilot, we see the disaster that kills half of the Voyager crew and how they try to build a new crew from these Voyager and Maquis personnel and try to put a crew together. Enterprise pilot, we see how they put that crew together. We never saw that for the original series. And so then this movie, like every major franchise reboot they do, just like Uncle Ben has to die in every new Spider-Man movie, you know, there has to be a radiation accident in every new Hulk movie, every reboot of a big franchise, they start off with the origin story. And so here is the Star Trek original series origin story. Here's how everyone came to be on the Enterprise. And I think that youthful energy uh, might be a good explanation for my dad's love of it, too, because it, you guys are so right about that. Starting from the origin, it almost has to have a youthful energy to it because of the relative youth of the cast. I mean, th these aren't characters that would be comfortable making the sort of weighty decisions that the original crew had to make in the uh, in the 80s movies or that Picard's crew had to make on uh, Next Generation uh, this is a crew that's very much kind of uh, learning as they go. And as a result, I think there is this kind of frenetic energy of people learning new things and doing things they've never done before and put in situations they're not entirely comfortable with. Let's round out the big three of the original series with McCoy, now played by Carl Urban. That was one of the casting decisions that as we said a little while ago, was great. He does a great job. But I remember at the time thinking, Amher's in the movie? Really? <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that, because that was the only role I'd ever seen Carl Urban in. Yeah. And, and a whole lot of people as well, I've got to think. But even apart from doing a DeForest Kelly impression, he still has that chemistry with Chris Pine and with Zach Quinto that yes. he really needs. Even though... McCoy is kind of de-emphasized in this movie. The big three in this movie, in terms of people among the core cast who get the most screen time and kind of do the most, is either Kirk, Spock, and Uhura, because of her relationship with Spock, or just Kirk and Spock, because the development of their relationship is focused on so much. But McCoy... Even though he doesn't get as much to do as some of the other characters and as much to do as particular fans of the character and particular fans of Carl Urban might want, he still shines in what he does get to do. All of his scenes with Chris Pine kind of resonate with that chemistry that Kirk and McCoy need to have. When they're at the Academy and McCoy is one of the people in the movie who is the most sick of Kirk's crap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, which, which is entirely in, in character. McCoy has to be kind of irritable and irritated. Um, and he is the one who's most likely to be sick of Kirk's crap and call him on it. That, that goes straight back to the original series. Yeah, totally. And to an extent, he does the same thing with Spock when he tries to call Spock out on his crap. Yes. You know, as McCoy, you have to always take a certain relish in getting a point over on Spock and then be really frustrated when you don't. <laughs> yeah, M McCoy is actually my favorite character from the original, or really from the Star, Star Trek universe. 
I've always been a fan of Bones from the time I was a little boy. So I, I delighted in pretty much all of the the big three interact the, the the original big three of of Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Their interaction in this movie, anytime they did, was basically pornography for me. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I really like that the one time McCoy really likes Spock and comments positively on Spock is after the Academy Review Board, when Spock is just smacked down Kirk. Oh, and he totally does smack down Kirk. His Kirk's defense there is just pathetic. Well, that's I don't like how pathetic Kirk's defense is there. I kind of wanted Kirk to make a better defense there. I wanted Kirk to say, you know, look, you presented me with this mission to rescue these hostages in the simulation, and isn't a Starfleet captain supposed to try to rescue people by whatever means are available. The means I had available was to reprogram the simulation. So I took any means I had to rescue those hostages. I yep. wish he would have made a more affirmative defense rather than just looking up there saying, I don't believe in your test and looking smug. I wish he had actually made a defense and tried to argue his way out of it. I mean, that's, that's the a- whole point of that Kirk is that he's sort of smug and feels superior and tries to fast talk his way out of things i wish they would have actually shown him trying to fast talk his way out of that well one of the qualities of kirk though is that he is a little smug and he fast talks his way out of things but he has enough intellectual backing to do it and i wish Mm -hmm. he had shown a little more of that you know i I think that's a great point uh, because um, i don't know about you guys but when i was watching the original movies and the movies especially i always admired how even if, when Kirk and Spock were presented at odds with each other, they each made valid points. And it was almost situations where it wasn't easy all the time to determine who was right and who was wrong. Yeah, like even if the review board slaps him down and says that's ridiculous, and Spock slaps him down and says that re- that's ridiculous, I would still like to see Kirk actually argue for his position. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I would have liked for Kirk to have an argument in that scene that might result in him getting a commendation for original thinking. Even after he's smacked down by everyone, including the crusty dean, Admiral Tyler Perry. Well, what would have, well, have been great is if he had said, you know, look, you gave me the mission to try to rescue these simulated hostages. I personally think of a Starfleet captain as presented to the hostage situation. He should try to protect the civilian hostages by whatever means are available to him. The means I had available was to reprogram the simulation. So I used the means I had available to accomplish my mission of rescuing these simulated hostages. Personally, I think you ought to give me a medal for original thinking. (laughs) You just wrote a better scene. (laughs) And then the board slaps him down hard and Spock slaps him down hard. That would have been great. And fitting with this new, like, sort of smug, authority-hating Kirk. It would have fit in right there. You know, it's a little bit of original Kirk, but also the new characterization of Kirk, where he's he's more antagonistic toward authority. He's more dismissive of anyone who thinks that they know better than him. And so it would have been, you know, both of those things. That would have been great. Instead, they just have him say, I don't believe in knowing scenarios, and has literally nothing else to say. Yeah, that is basically just there to underline that he's rebellious. He's very rebellious. Yes, but he should... I wanted him to be more than just rebellious. I wanted him to be able to back it up. I wanted him to try to fast-talk his way out of it. I think that was just there to get the no-win scenario line in the movie. That's how it basically worked out. I think they could have done so much more, though. That scene disappointed me. So, 
Moving back to McCoy for just one second. Yeah, how did we change topics to McCoy and suddenly go back to talking about Kirk and Spock? <laughs> well, that's... We're as bad as the writers of this movie. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's how the movie is constructed. It is just all about the two of them. <laughs> Which, I mean, fair enough for a Star Trek movie, but wow. <laughs> um, the one bum note for me in the way McCoy is handled in this movie is his introductory scene. I love the argument that he has with the officer, and I love his space phobia and all that, but the one line about, oh, the wife took the damn planet in the divorce, got nothing left but my bones, that is just so dumb. Why are we still doing stupid divorce jokes in 2009, let alone the 23rd century? <laughs> Maybe he meant that literally. They had a planet? Maybe. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe what, what? Like cousin Gala? Maybe his ex-wife comes from a wealthy family because he's from Georgia. In I don't know that they said that explicitly anywhere in this movie, but that's in Star Trek. It's known that McCoy is from Georgia. Maybe his wife comes from an affluent Southern family, and they have a lot of properties. And you know, since travel is so easy with transportation and shuttles, maybe they have properties all over the place, and maybe during the divorce negotiations, she pointed out, my family has properties in this country, in this country, in this country, in this country, and I'd appreciate it if you didn't go to any of these countries so I won't run into you after we're divorced. And he said, God, it's like you took the whole damn planet. That is an imaginative way of performing a uh, redemptive reading, and... I have said on this podcast that I'm a big fan of redemptive readings. I like to find them where possible. Um, I'm not interested in, in mounting defensive readings of what I think is just a lazy line. And I, sexist, and cliched. I, I think my biggest issue with the line is just... The line... <laughs> for lack of a better term, the line itself at the end when like... When he says, all I've got left are my bones, he might as well have turned to the camera and winked at that point. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true as, as well. There's also the whole fact that, you know, he doesn't need... Okay, he really doesn't need that reason to be called Bones. He doesn't need an explicit on-screen reason to be called Bones. Not every little thing needs to be explained. I mean, it's Star Trek. They have a lot of things you're not stopping to explain. Especially in this movie, which veers away greatly from the trend of Star Trek throughout the 90s of going into more and more technobabble to explain more and more things in incomprehensible terms, because they were always going to be incomprehensible anyway. Oh, I love the divorcement from Technobabble in this movie. We'll get into that later. Yeah, it's something else that's going back to the original series where, you know, we have all this technology, we have broke the time warp barrier, woo! You know, they, they have all this magical technology, they just use it. And, you know, it's still sci-fi, they have enough of a basis for everything and that's fine, but they don't try to explain everything on screen. And, and the plot points are not hung on technical explanations. Which is really something that Star Trek needed to get back to, as much as I love all the reference material. I mean, I've got all the tech manuals, and I, I love the non quote-unquote non-fiction Star Trek books. Love all that stuff. 
as background and as little details because I'm a big old dork. But hanging dramatic scenes and dramatic plot lines on that sort of technical explanation doesn't work. It's the big folly of Babel throughout parts of Next Gen and DS9 and large parts of Voyager and Enterprise. That is a trap they sort of fell into more and more over the years. DS9 escaped it a little bit because so many of their episodes are focused on the war, which did not have a Trekno-Babel solution, but especially on Voyager and then to an extent on Enterprise. Yeah, DS9 really balanced it better, and sometimes Next Gen found a really good balance with it. And like I said before, I've been revisiting Voyager. I just finished the first season the other day, and there are episodes that are fine and all, but it is a lot of Technobabble. You know, that's definitely something they needed to get away from, and they really do. It, it's kind of more of a more of a Star Wars approach in terms of that was, I think, one of the things that makes Star Wars so accessible is that there's not a whole lot of that techno babble in it. Well, there wasn't much in the original series or the original series movies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they just sort of presented this technology as a fait accompli. You know, we have this technology, and we're using it, and this is what it does, and that's it. We're moving forward with it. They don't stop to explain it. They don't stop to explain how a replicator works. They are just there on the Enterprise. They don't stop to explain how the transporter works. It's just there, and they use it. It's really sort of later, as you get later in Next Gen, and then into DS9 to an extent, and then Voyager and Enterprise, that they really sort of keep falling back on that more and more. Yeah, and it's a good way to hemorrhage your, for lack of a better, I hate, to, I hate this term, but casual audience. It's a good way to hemorrhage that because the average person really doesn't want to sit around and, and think about why is this transporter working. They're just like, wow, that transporter is really cool. You know, you might disparage the term casual audience, but I think it's to this movie's great credit that it did bring in a lot of that casual audience and a lot of that mainstream audience not just for the success of this movie, but the original series and Next Gen enjoyed mm -hmm. big boosts on streaming services after mm -hmm. in the wake of this movie. Yeah. And so it brought in a lot of new Trekkies. When there has not been one second of new material in four years, you need to bring in casual fans. Yeah. You need to bring in more than the diehards, because... There aren't that many diehards anymore. Yeah, as the death of the franchise, for a time, proved there ain't enough diehards to get it done. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and it's funny because you're so right about that that effect that it had. It created this wave of momentum, even for the older stuff. I had a friend who had never seen Wrath of Khan, and after this movie, I was like, "Oh, you've got to see Wrath of Khan, dude!" And he watched Wrath of Khan, and it became one of his favorite movies. It's good that he saw it before Darkness came out. Yes. <laughs> Ironically <laughs> enough, Darkness, not one of his favorite movies. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there and we'll have a couple things to say. But we are still talking about Star Trek Eleven right now, not Star Trek Twelve quite yet. Uh, I really hate the way you number the movies after they stop putting numbers on them. What do you mean? It's the 11th Star Trek movie. If you go by that moniker... I mean, you can say it's the 11th Star Trek movie, but it's not Star Trek 11, as in it's the 11th in a series. There were six movies in a series, and after that they stopped numbering them. If you want to say Star Trek The Next Generation, the movie 1, and Star Trek The Next Generation, the movie part 2, 
and Star Trek The Next Generation 3 and Star Trek The Next Generation 4, you can say that, but that series is over as well. This is one in the new series. I hate calling it one because it feels like a resetting or a rebooting, if you will. Well, it is. They're in an entirely new universe. <laughs> you keep coming back to this argument that I thought we were going to have in the second half. You want to do it now or you want to do it later? Let's try to get through the rest of the characters. Let's, let's, go, let's go through the rest of the characters now. Let's move on to another character who's very important in this movie that we've mentioned a couple of times, and that is Uhura, played by the great Zoe Saldana. Greg, I know you mentioned Zachary Quinto getting to kind of commune with Leonard Nimoy a little and kind of shade his portrayal of Spock after doing that. Uh, Zoe Saldana has said multiple times, I believe, that she didn't meet Nichelle Nichols until very late in the filming of this movie, when she only had a couple of scenes left to film. And if she had, that her performance might have been a little different. What do you think about her portrayal of Uhura and generally Uhura's use in this movie? I liked her portrayal. I, I like her in almost everything. I think she's really talented. She's really good. She does a good job in this of giving the character some fire and quite honestly giving the character some stronger moments than are written because I kind of feel like her role is, is, a, is a little underwritten in the movie. She's basically relegated to being the love interest. And in fairness, in the original series, she was relegated to even more of a background role a lot of the time. But I think the, the writing could have done her a little bit better here. But the performance... I thought was really good and she is the one character in the entire cast that I think what you just pointed out shows because at no point do I really think that she is really uh, tapping into Nichelle Nichols like there it seems like a totally different character but I'm cool with that coming from the world of comics you get that a lot and in her position I think she did she did absolutely as well as she could and I thought she did have really good chemistry with Zachary Quinto in particular and also Chris Pine when they were on screen together. It's just I would have liked to have seen her get a little bit more to do than just than just be the romantic foil between Kirk and Spock. Yeah, one of the things that struck me watching the movie again just the other day is that Uhura shines in a couple of moments that aren't really related to Spock, and it is almost entirely because of Zoe Saldana's acting and the sort of strength that she tries very hard to imbue into the role. Um, mm -hmm. The moments when she gets to display her skill at her job, her skill as a linguist, her skill as a linguistic scientist, really do a lot to kind of counter the notion that she's only the love interest, as much as, like you say, she's basically written mostly as the love interest. Yeah, mm -hmm. in Star Trek VI, she was the one that was the butt of the joke and shown to be incompetent at her job for the sake of a funny scene. Now she's the supremely competent one that replaces the one that's shown to be incompetent at his job. Right. That's an improvement. That's true. That's, that's a good point, actually, yeah. I like her scenes with Kirk. I think the two of them, their antagonistic chemistry is really works well in this movie. Mm-hmm. The scenes with Spock, I don't think they have as good chemistry as the scenes where she's fighting with Kirk. But I really like the way they structured the scene, especially in the turbo lift after the destruction of Vulcan. 
where she is not the sort of typical movie, you know, show me you care, show open up to me. She very much respects his need to maintain his reserved demeanor. She goes along with it. She offers help where she can. She asks what she can do to help. She accepts his answer that's sort of a brush off and not a real answer. I like that they showed... It's very easy in trying to show a relationship between a Vulcan and a human to show the human being like frustrated and angry that the Vulcan won't open up emotionally because that's what we're shown as the ideal in so many human relationships is you have to open up and make yourself vulnerable and show your deepest feelings to your partner and Spock doesn't do that because he's been told all his life to not show his feelings to anyone. And I like that they showed Uhura accepting that and working with that and accepting that as part of their relationship rather than railing against it and trying to make him act more like a human would in a romantic relationship. She did a wonderful job in that scene of displaying empathy without it feeling inauthentic. And you're totally right. The way that they wrote that scene was very, very good. The way, But I think the way that the scene only worked because of the way that she presented it, the way that she, when I looked at her and I could see the tears welling in her eyes and as she, she just grabbed Spock's face, not in a way to confront him, but in a way to console. And she is in that moment, an extremely empathetic person that goes beyond movie stereotypes of like you said, why won't you open up to me? Why won't you tell me how you really feel? Things like that. She completely feels his pain and understands where he's coming from. Yeah, it would have been very easy to play that differently. It would have been very easy, even with the same lines, to play when Spock says he needs, you know, the crew to keep performing, whatever, whatever, and she says, okay, okay. It would have been easy to play that, like, sarcastically, or as if she's the one who's hurt by his reaction to trauma. You know, it would have been very easy to play that line as, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, your girlfriend offers to comfort you and you talk about what you need the crew to perform. Okay, yeah, that's great. Good job, Spock. Yeah, it would have been really easy to go there. And it almost wouldn't have merited criticism if they had gone there and tried to do that. I think it would have been too much to try to do to layer that relationship angst on top of everything else they're trying to do already trying to do in this movie. And while maybe we wouldn't necessarily have picked that out and criticized it if they had done it, I'm really glad they didn't do it. I think the way they went is a much better way to go and shows a much healthier relationship. Right, definitely. Would now be the time to bring up your favorite, favorite, favorite topic? Even more favorite than the reboot, not a reboot argument. Your favorite, favorite, favorite topic? Thoughts on the love triangle? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh, oh god. And that's a callback. <laughs> um. Oh gods. Yes, the thrice bedamned love triangle. In all seriousness, as much as I know you hate that bar scene where Kirk sort of. Is the dude, a fucking creep, dude brodiest of dude bro entitled dude at the bar? I like the way they portrayed that scene where she rather 
forcefully smacks him down. And the scene doesn't criticize her for forcefully smacking him down. It shows that he's being kind of a jerk because he's drunk and a jerk. And maybe he doesn't deserve to get the shit kicked out of him by three military recruits. But it absolutely shows that he deserves to be smacked down hard the way Uhura is smacking him down hard. Well, you do. And I also like that he kind of takes it. Like, he, like when she insults him and, and insinuates that he has sex with farm animals... He doesn't, like, get all offended and take umbrage with it. No, how, how could you say that to me? I'm all man, baby. You know, he sort of takes it and laughs along with it and makes another crack about it. I like that aspect of his character that it shows in that scene. But I also like that it shows that she smacks him down hard and he deserves to be smacked down hard. That's fair. Um, you also get the impression that when she tells Cupcake and the other meatheads... That, you know, she's okay, she's got this. That she she really has got this. She's she's fine. She's she's not in any danger from him. She can handle herself. Yeah. In many ways. In this is sort of a stretch, maybe. You could argue the point that they're being, you know, Cupcake and his two cronies, they're being as disrespectful in a way, maybe not as disrespectful, but they are also being disrespectful to Uhura as Kirk is being. Where, where Kirk is continuing trying to hit on her after she's told him in no uncertain terms, I'm not interested, leave me alone, buddy. They also show up and insinuate themselves into the situation when she does pretty much have it handled. She knows that he's not a threat, he's just an annoyance, and she can fairly handle the annoyance because she knows that she's got her wits about her. She's not a drunk jerk. She can handle this situation. She knows she can handle this situation. But these three, not maybe not dude bros, but these three white military recruit dudes feel the need to insinuate themselves into this situation as if Uhura is this damsel in distress that needs their protection. So in a way, they are also being very disrespectful to Uhura as Kirk is being. That is definitely a uh, fair point and a good point. And when I say I, I don't like the bar scene, that is the only part of the bar scene I don't like. I like the fight just fine, because as we see many, many times in this movie, Kirk always gets his ass kicked in this movie. Yes. <laughs> like, every time he's in a fight with someone, he is just getting beat down. And a little small touch that I like about this movie that a lot, that many, many, many movies, and especially TV shows, don't do, he wears the wounds of that fight well after the fight is over like in in later scenes and then later when he has the fight with spock he wears his wounds from that scene late into the movie and a lot of movies and tv shows just don't pay attention to i mean it's not significant it doesn't make make that much of a difference but it does it does kind of like i noticed i actually i actively noticed it when i was watching this movie last night i was like he's still showing the wounds from that bar fight well, especially not just the bar fight, but the uh, when he when they fight the Romulans on the drilling platform, and he has those <laughs> bruises and scrapes all over his face, basically until the end of the movie. Yeah, it it and it's it, it doesn't happen a lot in movies. I, I guess because I watch so many superhero movies, everybody seems to recover very quickly from yeah. the last. Phase. Yeah, like everybody has super healing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's run through the other members of the original series ensemble, which is kind of an anachronistic term to apply to the original series because it had that 
cast of main characters, but it was super focused on the triumvirate, on Kirk, Bones, and Spock in the series. And one of the things that later Star Trek did was the other Star Trek shows were always ensemble shows. And in the movies, we've tracked, Scott, how some of them are more ensemble movies than others are. Ironically, it was the original series movies that did a better job of using all of the seven main characters than the Next Generation movies did, when the Next Generation was the series that actually used all the characters. Oftentimes, yes, indeed. So we have a few more members of the original series ensemble. We have uh, Scotty, uh, played by Simon Pegg, which I don't think any of these castings is bad. I think Simon Pegg really makes sense as someone who has a comedic background and can do a Scottish accent, which are probably the most important things in casting Scotty. Well, it does... Casting Simon Pegg in that role does basically turn him into a comic relief character. I mean, Scotty wasn't overly used a lot, but he was a serious character in the original series. He was in charge of engineering. He was the one that took over the bridge a lot when Kirk and Spock would beam down to the surface. They'd leave Scotty in command of the ship. I mean, he had his funny bits. He had the part where he got the alien drunk. And, 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 you know, he was involved in the bar fight in the Tribbles episode. But everyone in the Tribbles episode was comic relief. But he was not any more of the butt of jokes than any other character. He, he was just as much a serious character as anyone else was, just less utilized than Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Casting Simon Pegg in this role does basically slot him into the role of comic relief character, for the most part. That's true. That might be another element of the cultural memory, kind of overriding some of the subtler aspects of characterization from the TV show. Well, I think the cultural memory of Scotty at this point is basically limited to the fact that he got really fat in the later movies and Hello Computer. Period. End of the cultural memory of Scotty. And so if your only cultural memory of the character is from Star Trek Four, then you are going to associate them with comic relief. And for me, it was really effective comic relief because I love the comedic take on Scotty and I love the energy that Simon Pegg brought to it because you could really tell he was having a lot of fun playing the character. And I think that in the midst of all of this, um, literally this world-threatening drama uh, you have this character that will come in with his weird little um, assistant that he had that, that kept getting on things. Um, and uh, for me, it was, it was a welcome a welcome addition. I really enjoyed uh, Peg bringing up the humor level a little bit of the movie. Yeah, I think it, re- it really worked well. I don't mean that as a criticism to say that they turned oh, the character right. into comic relief. I'm just saying that it is a change. But I thought, yeah, I agree with you. I think it really worked well in the movie. Sulu also, played by John Cho now... Uh, does a little bit of comic relief in the movie. I mean, his main role is that he can't bring the Enterprise into warp. And yeah, his fir- we, we talked earlier about how Uhura got stuck with the butt of that scene in Star Trek VI of the character made incompetent for the sake of one funny line. Same thing with Worf in First Contact, where the supremely competent tactical officer can't handle a zero-G maneuver for the sake of one funny line. 
Sulu's first scene in this movie, he is now the supremely competent officer made incompetent for the sake of one funny line. Well, for the sake of one funny line and the fact that he saves the ship by being incompetent. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> and also his other funny line about, you know, what's your combat training? Fencing. <laughs> yeah, apparently Captain Pike has no trained security officers, so when he needs to organize no, an assault. Nobody, on, <laughs> nobody yeah. on the bridge had any hand-to-hand combat training. Well, why is he <laughs> quizzing the bridge officers as to who has combat training? How about, don't they have an entire security staff? Don't, don't they have an entire security division? Isn't there, like, a whole cadre of security officers? Dozens and dozens of specifically trained security officers on this ship? Why does he have to do, like, a pop quiz among the bridge crew to see who, if anyone has combat training? Well, well they, they do have trained security, but they're not trained in combat. Well, it's not like he was going to send Cupcake. <laughs> One uh, one minor complaint I had about Sulu in the movie is he said they make a point out of the fencing line, and then when he fights uh, the uh, the Romulan aboard the drill, he actually doesn't use any fencing moves. He just wildly swings his sword at him, which uh, which again a very minor point. But but I was like there didn't appear to be a whole lot of fencing technique in his uh, in his fighting aboard the uh, aboard the drill. Yeah, not a lot of parries and thrusts. No, no, none of that. Well, all the fighting on the drill is sort of messed up from the start. Like, if you're going to get into a fist fight with a bunch of Romulans, maybe keep your helmets on. <laughs> well, we'll have a little more about the drill fight and all the other fights uh, a little later, I think. But uh, rounding out the ensemble from the original series is Anton Yelchin as Chekhov, which, in terms of little changes to present the crew as younger. Chekhov was always younger than the rest of them, and he actually had a couple episodes in the original series about how young he was compared to a lot of the other officers. And so to make him this, like, child in this movie does actually make sense. Yeah, I like Chekhov the Wunderkind. And I like Chekhov... It worked really well. And I really like Chekhov in this movie, although, again, he's sort of reduced to comic relief. Again, sort of because of the accent, sort of similar to Simon Pegg Scotty. Any character that has an accent is sort of reduced to comic relief, because ha-ha accents. But I really like him in this movie. His, like, he has that youthful enthusiasm about everything he's doing. Everything is exciting, everything is, oh, I can do that, I can do that! A kid stuck in a situation like this would be doing that. That's what you do when you're a kid amongst adults trying to gain their respect. I can do that. I can do that. Trust me to do that. Let me do something important. That is how a kid would react in that kind of situation. And then when he actually does it, he's so excited. Like, yes, I did that. Look what I did. I thought that one worked really, really, really well. And it set up that great line from McCoy as well. How old is this kid? I'm 17. Oh, great. He's 17. (laughs) <laughs> and when he says that line, he looks at Kirk accusatorily, like, oh, good, he's 17. As if Kirk put him there, like, hey, Jim, why do you have this child here? <laughs> Everything is secretly Kirk's fault. He's sure of that. He just doesn't know how. <laughs> <laughs> and that is very consistent with the original series, McCoy. Yes. <laughs> On that note, we will hit our break 
on this show. We will listen to some ads for wrestling podcasts and thegreatplacetobenation.com. We will see you on the other side. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nations justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes stitcher google play and place to be nation.com and we now offer them to you on two great feeds as well on the place to be podcast feed you can check out scott criscolo and me on the mothership the place to be podcast with our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews ptbn also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines main event mission indie possible in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on wwe nxt and ring of honor super shows Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We also have sports covered, too, with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoon Show, and NBA Team Podcast. On our brand new PTB Pop Podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows are available on PlaceMation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments and more. Be sure to check out on the right-hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's One-Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave, Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We've got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show, Tag Team's Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze, and a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network.
Listen all y'all, it's the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and we are back talking about the 11th Star Trek movie, Star Trek 2009, Star Trek 11, Star Trek 1 as some people call it, whatever you want to call it, I'm Glenn, we've got Scott, we've got Greg, and we are talking about it. Moving back into this movie, I want to talk about one of the very prominent characters that we haven't talked about yet, and that is Spock played by Leonard Nimoy. And this, this is the core reason why we have been arguing for so long, Scott. You believe that this is a reboot, and it certainly uses the trappings and aesthetics of a reboot, but my contention, as ever, is that it cannot be a reboot because Leonard Nimoy is playing Spock as a direct follow-up to previous plot lines from the Prime Universe. This movie is in an alternate universe, which the film totally stops for all the characters to explain to us, which includes Leonard Nimoy playing Spock, which would not be possible in a reboot. Well, you just said this is an entire alternate universe. This universe does not have the same history as the Star Trek universe we've been watching up until now. All of that history is brought into it by Spock. But it's Spock from an alternate timeline. It's not Spock from this timeline. We're watching a different timeline from the entire rest of produced Star Trek. Yes, like we were in the Mirror Universe episodes, and like we were in any number of episodes with alternate universes. Yes, if they made an entire series about the Mirror Universe, that would not be the same timeline as our Star Trek yeah, timeline. it's just not in the same timeline. It's not a reboot of the timeline. It is, though, because it's completely divorced from the original timeline. It's, a, it's not a reboot. It's a rebirth. See? DC Comics here. Uh, <laughs> it's a different universe, but the same multiverse. Well, that's what I was going to say, and I don't have much knowledge of comics, just sort of very peripherally stuff I read about, so I was going to rely on your expertise a bit for this, Greg. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they reboot comics all the time, don't they? They, they get to a certain point and they say, okay, we've been telling this story long enough, let's start over from earlier in the timeline. You know, oh, they... it's time to make Peter Parker 15 again. It's time to unfreeze Captain America again. It's it's time to start over from the beginning again. They they do that fairly often with these older comics lines, do they not? Not as much as you might think based on coverage of them. However, there for instance, believe it or not, Marvel's main universe has remained the same continuity basically since 1964, uh, give or take. And what they do is they'll do these storylines occasionally that condense the timeline and can make a character younger or what have you. And it's usually done in Marvel through, you know, uh, mystic ends. Like, for instance, a character like Mephisto will de-age someone or something like that or, or take away a chunk of time. But it's their actual main continuity. Like, if you pick up Amazing Spider-Man, it is the same, theoretically, the same Peter Parker that you were reading in 1960-whatever. However, they do have something like the Ultimate Universe where you've got a totally different Peter Parker who starts over at 15 again, and you see his stories. DC has been guilty of rebooting a time or two, but what they've recently done is they've said, 
everything you've ever seen counts. It's all part of our new multiverse, and it's all part of the same shared continuity, if you will. But yeah, it, it is a concept that DC has done several times. That's exactly what I was going to ask about. The um, When they do sort of start a different line, you know, Amazing Spider-Man has the same continuity for X number of years, but there are other Spider-Man titles that follow different continuities. And, and you said DC does that, and DC, it sounds like, does the thing that I sort of have heard about vaguely and was meaning to ask you about, where they have different lines of the same characters but within different continuities and they then say well those different continuities are like alternate universes of each other and then they do like a big crossover where where the one you know the amazing spider-man jumps over and interacts with the ultimate spider-man and the two of them manage to jump timelines and interact with the super duper ultimate spider-man and whatever don't they do those (laughs) sorts of like big crossovers between their different for lack of better term alternate realities of the characters absolutely however the term reboot is used very specifically in instances and it's very rare um 1985's crisis on infinite earth was a reboot because they said okay everything that you've read we're restarting it we're literally instead of having a multiverse we have one universe and we'll tell you what counts and what doesn't count from the past and then they did the same thing in 2011 with the New 52, to much consternation. They basically wiped out all of the characters' histories. They de-aged them to their mid-20s, ended all of the uh, re- relationships and entanglements that they all had, and basically started from scratch with these characters. That was a true reboot. Something like what they've done recently with this Rebirth initiative, they don't consider that a reboot because they're actually bringing continuity back as opposed to... Uh, wiping out the last five years or what have you, so it's it's all quite it's all quite convoluted when I when I stop to try and explain it. But I would actually tend to side with Glenn on this one. I don't really think that you can consider this a true reboot because it directly acknowledges the prior continuity, just a parallel continuity. Okay, I think I'm. I think the problem is I've been using a much looser definition of the word reboot. If you, I think I think that's probably if the true, word but. has that much more restrictive, much more specific definition, then you're right. This is not a reboot by that definition. I've been using it as a much looser term. It is possible that I have been overly technical and obstinate on this point, but if so, yeah. I'm going to own that, and I'm going to keep doing that. Well, according <laughs> according to Greg, me too. Yeah. According to Greg, the use of the term within the comics community is that technical specific definition that you've been using obstinately. However, the reason that it's so technical and it's so such a uh, a precise and talked about term to use is because comic book fans are uh, notoriously retentive about things. They tend to get worked up very easily about minor things like word usage so i'm not sure they so, do it that much more than trekkies that was exactly where <laughs> i was just going to go i mean depending on what parts of fandom you're interacting with oh i mean <laughs> as, as i've said previously on this show i mean it happens in any fandom smarks ruin everything <laughs> that's true yes that's yes but it's not a reboot i i am fervently of that opinion The reason that the writers and producers of this movie resisted rebooting Star Trek 
and instead used a lot of the things that a reboot lets you do in terms of de-aging people, in terms of kind of sloughing off a continuity that some writers would feel is restrictive, and a sort of generally a context that has been developed over several decades and that might feel restrictive. The reason, chiefly, that they would not just go ahead and reboot it, which might be a simpler thing to do and maybe an easier thing to do, would be because of the fury that that would have engendered in some circles, because there are people, and in the, in the past, I, I would have been one of them. I like to think I'm better now. I like to think I grow as a human being. But there are definitely people who are very, very protective of the particular details of continuity that they perceive in media. I think is a very general way of putting it. I think a more general way of putting it is if they had gone ahead and said we're cutting off the last 40-odd years of Star Trek continuity like a snake shedding its old skin and we're starting over new, the Smarks would have gone apeshit. Yeah, basically. Because there's this sense... And I don't really understand it, subjectively. But there's a sense that when a story is retconned or shifted out of continuity, that it somehow means less. Which I don't quite understand, because... I mean, it's still there. You have it on DVD. <laughs> I used to feel that way. I, I wouldn't have put it in those terms, because I didn't analyze it that much, but... That feeling is basically one that I shared. What cured me of that partly was my disdain for much of Voyager, where I sort of got used to the idea of, oh, now there's Star Trek that sucks. Now there's Star Trek that I'd just as soon ignore. I had never been in that position before. And also my investment in the novel series where a lot of the older ones are contradicted by the newer ones, a lot of the older ones are contradicted by later television, a lot of the older ones are just kind of wonky, because they weren't that careful about continuity with some of the older novels. They were just trying to slap the Star Trek name on something because it would sell. And even right up until the more recent novels, they would be contradicted by the new episode of television that came on the next week. So... That sort of very much got me used to the idea that, you know, just because a story was later contradicted and maybe didn't really happen within this fictional context, in this fictional definition of real within this fictional universe, just because it doesn't fit in the same history as the rest of this television show, doesn't mean that it's not a good story. It doesn't mean you can't still read it and enjoy it. Yeah, there is a lot of Sturm und Drang over canon, and what is canon, and what is not canon. And those conversations can be super fun. You know, I love a good detailed analysis of continuity points, but I think it's important to have perspective, and I think it's important to consider that all fiction is equally real. <laughs> Glenn, I wish that I could take that comment and send it in a postcard to almost every comic book fan on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that I keep going back to is they very explicitly said in the original series episode Space Seed, when they talk about the eugenics wars from 1992 to 1996, they very explicitly call it 
Earth's last world war. And then in the pilot episode of The Next Generation, Encounter at Farpoint, they visit the 2060s in a post-atomic horror that happened right after World War III in the 2060s. So if you can watch both the original series and The Next Generation and not collapse in a some sort of seizure trying to reconcile the two, you can, if you can watch both of those series and enjoy both of those series while those two episodes continue to exist, I really don't see your problem. Just as I like to kind of short-circuit a lot of the black and white thinking in terms of... You know, in the 90s, a lot more emphasis was placed on, oh, do you like Star Trek or Star Wars? You know, do you like Deep Space Nine or Babylon 5? Uh, all of this sort of black and white thinking and binary thinking on, on some of these issues. And I think it did me well as a human being when eventually I figured out it's okay to like two things. It can often be quite fun. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. And I think it's an understanding that comes with time. For some of us, anyway, because I was definitely like ten years ago. I was definitely the uh, the stereotypical comic book smart. And over time, um, I, my, I've come to realize why do you have to pick Marvel or DC? Why do you have to pick Superman or Batman? Exactly. You know? Well, now that we've established that I'm using the wrong definition of the word reboot, and that <laughs> and that the Glud's doing a little dance right now. I'll never stop dancing. And that under the more restrictive definition that apparently is the more commonly used definition, this alternate timeline doesn't actually qualify as a reboot. I would like to get into how exactly this alternate timeline happened, because I am very strongly of the opinion that it cannot have possibly happened the way that Spock says it happened in the movie. Fascinating. The supposition that everyone makes in the movie that Spock makes explicitly and that everyone else accepts is that in the past, 25 years in the past, at the time of Kirk's birth, the Romulan ship, the Narada, comes through this wormhole into this universe and that at that point the timelines diverged. That's what Spock says when he explains to the bridge crew what an alternate timeline is. That the Narada came through and started doing things that didn't happen in the original history, and that's why this is a different history. That's the point of divergence. In every alternate history, you have a point of divergence, where real history went one way and your alternate history went another way. That's the what-if question at the center of alternate history. What-if... Hitler won World War II. That's the point of divergence, where real history went one way, and your alternate supposition is going another way. What if the Narada went back in time and started blowing shit up? That's your point of divergence, according to Spock. I don't believe that to be possible. Because at the time the Narada showed up, things were already so different. The Kelvin was already different from any ship that we know of in the original history. The uniforms on the Kelvin, the technology on the Kelvin, all of that is already so different from anything we know from the original history. Also, there is no logical reason why many of the changes we see would have happened because the Narada came through and blew up the Kelvin. Why 
are the Starfleet uniforms so different because the Narada came through and blew up the Kelvin? Why is the command structure so different because the Narada came through and blew up the Kelvin? Why does the Enterprise bridge look like the Apple store because the Narada came through and blew up the Kelvin? None of these changes make sense as a change that happened because of something that happened at this point of divergence or since this point of divergence. So, in my opinion, there are only two possible explanations for how this alternate timeline actually formed. I'll go through the explanation that I dismiss because I don't think it could have happened, then I'll go through the explanation that I actually sort of go along with. And I realize this is all kind of arcane and going against the sort of fan-wank stuff we were just criticizing for ten minutes, but... Yeah, yeah, hey Scott, all fiction is equally real. Yes, but within... <laughs> But like I said, the discussion is fun to have. I think we have a good perspective. We can have the discussion. Even though all fiction is equally unreal, we can still expect a certain internal continuity within a piece of fiction. Yes. And so sure. that's what I'm arguing. So here's the idea that I sort of dismiss. It's possible because the Narada came through at one point and then Spock came through at a much later date, it is possible that other things came through this wormhole long before the Narada came through. If there's, like, debris of some sort, or maybe supernova energy left over from when Spock contained the supernova, or if there's debris from a battle, or if there's, like, asteroids or something, maybe something came through this wormhole long ago. Maybe something came through this wormhole more than a couple of decades ago. Maybe something came through this wormhole centuries ago that had some sort of subtle effect and then it just sort of expanded and ricocheted on itself and somehow led to all of these changes we've seen. These changes could not have all happened since the Narada came through 25 years ago and they would not have all happened because the Narada came through 25 years ago. So maybe something came through much earlier that somehow had a subtle effect that eventually led to these changes. That's possible. I personally don't think it works. The more likely scenario, at least in my personal opinion, is that this is an already existing alternate timeline. Like the Mirror Universe is an already existing alternate timeline. Nobody went through and created a point of divergence to create the Mirror Universe. The Mirror Universe is already there, and our characters just managed to find a way to jump into it. That's what I think this is. This is an already existing alternate timeline. That would have already led to all of these subtle differences, changes in Starfleet structure, changes in starship design, yada yada yada. This is a pre-existing alternate universe that the Narada and old Spock managed to jump into through the black hole artificial wormhole created by the Red Matter. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I'm stunned. Yeah, that's... I never really considered that possibility. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody has any response. <laughs> I, I don't really know. I, I feel like, I, I feel like at, at this point, you've, you've pretty well put enough thought into your ideas that I feel like it's pretty well formed. <laughs> well, I've been bowling this over for seven years now. From the moment you left the theater the first time. Yeah, from from some point in 2009, once I actually got past, wow, that was actually good, and actually started analyzing it. 
that means that there could be a movie now. Well, maybe not now, but there could have been a movie then where the original timeline, the cast of the original Star Trek, the original timeline, could then interact with their past alternate timeline counterparts through the wormhole. In theory, if they could recreate the conditions, get more red matter and try to recreate the exact conditions. And why wouldn't they? Maybe they come through looking for old Spock. Here we go, yes! See, now this is a movie I want to see. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately it's going to be hard to make another movie with old Spock. Yeah. Yes. Let's get back to old Spock a little bit. And the role of Leonard Nimoy in this movie. Because... I mentioned before the sort of tap dancing that they have to do with segments of fandom to try to avoid fandom rage. And one of the things that they did to try to gain quote-unquote legitimacy among the people who believed that the new movie would be quote-unquote illegitimate was to include Leonard Nimoy and to give him such a prominent role in this movie. They also had to give him a prominent role to get Leonard Nimoy to sign on, really. Yeah. Given his reticence to sign on in the past when he would have had a much reduced role. Well, not only had he not appeared in Star Trek since 1991, but he had basically completely retired from acting many years before this. Yeah, he had not appeared in anything as an actor for a very long time, and then announced his retirement from acting to focus on his photography and poetry, I believe, as well. Uh, whatever other artistic pursuits he had. And so to kind of lure him back for this movie was something that J.J. Abrams and the writers wanted to do, not only to kind of bolster their movie, but to place it in context, as it were, and to have Spock in the movie to place various parts of the movie in context. You know, there's a section in the middle of this movie where he starts gathering Enterprise crew members. You know, he happens upon Kirk and then brings him to Scotty and then gets them to the Enterprise, basically. He is the engine kind of driving the plot forward in those scenes and also kind of putting the pieces together as one might think they need to be. You introduced this whole thing by talking about Leonard Nimoy's role in the movie. Leonard Nimoy's role in this movie is to lend it legitimacy. To a very, very, very large extent, Leonard Nimoy's role in this movie is to act as a signpost to a lot of Star Trek fans many of whom are the ones we have been complaining about intermittently through this episode. And occasionally have been. And be occasionally fair. have been. <laughs> but Leonard Nimoy's role in this movie, in large part, is to signify to a large swath of Star Trek fans, it's okay, this really is Star Trek, come and see it. And it's interesting because we talked earlier about the influx of new fans that this that this movie brought in, the, the, the so-called casual audience that this brought in. However, interesting story, the first time I saw this movie in the theater, I saw it a few times, the entire theater stood, not necessarily stood up, but a lot of people stood up, but everybody in the theater applauded and cheered the big reveal when he turned around and it was Leonard Nimoy's face as Spock. Like, everybody knew who he was instantly and recognized him and... And applauded, or maybe they applauded because 
the Trekkies in the audience were applauding, but they applauded nonetheless. Very cool moment. Even among the casual fans, the person you're going to recognize is Leonard Nimoy as Spock. Uh, if you're looking for mm-hmm. casual fans or just people on the street that aren't necessarily Trekkies, he's the one they're going to recognize from Star Trek. And it's the good kind of nostalgia hit, where it's a little... It's pushing the same buttons that Star Trek has been pushing for many of us for a very long time. I had never thought of your point that at one point in this movie, Spock is basically acting as Nick Fury recruiting people for the Avengers Initiative. Uh, If we're going to keep talking about it as a superhero origin story, yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I had never thought of it that way either, but that's a good point. And quite honestly, I think Leonard Nimoy's Spock is like the one dude in the universe cooler than Nick Fury, so (laughs) there you have it. And no matter what you think of the black hole, wormhole explanation for the movie's entire premise, Spock is the one responsible for that. Spock created the entire situation in the movie. And depending on how much of the alternate universe-ness you put on that particular act, Spock created this alternate universe. Well, you pointed out to me when we were watching it that because Spock knows this is an alternate history, he has no compunction whatsoever about trying to maintain the integrity of the timeline. He just starts giving out future information left and right. Yeah, he gives advanced scientific theory to Scotty because we need to get out of this situation right now. Uh, You know, he tells Kirk so much about what he is quote-unquote supposed to do as far as being captain of the Enterprise at a point in time when Kirk doesn't think that's possible. And being Spock's friend at a point in time when Kirk doesn't think that's possible. And it's kind of weird because in some ways it felt like Spock Prime sort of forces Kirk and Spock to become friends in a weird way. In a way, I was was thinking along those same lines, Greg, that... There's a certain way of looking at this movie, and I think the writers and producers of the movie actually looked at it that way. And the only reason I'm dismissing it as a certain way of looking at it, rather than saying the way they made it, is because I don't like looking at it that way. There's a certain way of looking at this movie where there's a lot of like destiny and fate at play in this movie. That Kirk is supposed to be captain of the Enterprise. He and Spock are supposed to be close friends and comrades. A lot of this movie is about what's supposed to happen. That's why Kirk gets happens to be stranded on the same planetoid that Scotty is on. Because Scotty is supposed to be part of that crew. And so Destiny placed them together so that Kirk could bring Scotty with him and put him on the ship where he belongs. To a certain extent, you can edit out the word Destiny and Fate and just replace it with old Spock trying to make things like the universe he came from. To a large extent, yeah. It's not so much yeah. destiny that Kirk has to command the ship as Spock saying, you commanded the ship in my timeline, I'll try to make you command it in this one as well. I'll take take this guy with you. He, he's a good engineer. And with this Kirk, maybe forcing him into the captain's chair isn't the greatest thing. <laughs> well, they get into that more yeah, in later movies. But... True. Can I ask you guys a question? I had a, a bit of confusion watching it this past time because... It feels like there's a line somewhere near the end of the movie where uh, old Spock is talking to either Kirk or, or young Spock. I can't remember which. They basically ask, so why did you seek me out or what have I think it was Kirk. He's like, why did, why did you seek me out or whatever? And he gives some explanation for it. The weird thing about that is 
it appears as if Kirk just randomly landed on the planet that Spock was on, that Scotty also just happened to randomly be on. Is the implication that Spock somehow maneuvered these events to take place? Not those particular events, but when Kirk first meets Spock Prime, he sees Kirk for the first time in a very, very long time, for him, and he assumes immediately that he's come looking for him. You know, he, he asks, how did you find me here, and, and such. Even though this is a much younger Kirk, actually probably a Kirk younger than he was when he first met Spock in the original timeline, and Spock knows this is an alternate timeline. Right, right. He, he, he still can't shake the assumption, though. Yeah. Which is, again, going back to the fact of their friendship as a sort of fundamental aspect of both of their characters. Like, Spock, even Spock Prime, can't really conceive of Kirk just happening upon him without some intentionality. That's fair. And in fairness to the whole deal there, the performance from Nimoy is so good. I mean, he, it's just like it's like putting on an old sock. It just fits perfect. Yeah. Just hearing that voice again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, he hadn't been Spock since 1991. Yeah, and he is visibly older. He is audibly older. His voice is, you know, just different than it was when he was Spock in 1991. And he still conveys Spock so, so well. Oh, absolutely. And that having his voice at the end of the These Are the Voyages uh, speech was just... It's one of those moments, even last night when I was finishing the movie off, like it literally made the hair on my arm stand up. Because it's just one of those... One of those cool moments that uh, I'm really glad that we got to see. You know, that that one last time. Well, again, he's sort of lending legitimacy. He's basically saying, you know, I'm Leonard Nimoy, you know me, I'm telling you, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise with all these young kids warping around on the Apple Store ship. You can watch them and enjoy it. It's real Star Trek. Go and enjoy. Uh, Definitely. And that is the best reason to have Leonard Nimoy do it at the end of this movie rather than Chris Pine who would be the other obvious choice. But for one thing, if you're going to have Leonard Nimoy in your movie as a major role and not just a cameo, you kind of have to have him do it. You know, <laughs> don't don't miss mm-hmm. that opportunity. Exactly. It, you know, given the state of play in 2009, you have to have Nimoy do it. And they had Pine record the same monologue. I believe it's on the uh, Blu-ray. But they decided, and I think it's a good decision for the reasons we've stated, to... Uh, go ahead and put the Nimoy version in. It would have been pretty cool if they had faded from Nimoy into Pine, like in the last third or so. I think it would be really easy for that to come off as hokey. You think? I'm reminded of the series finale of Enterprise when they uh, faded through a few versions of that. That was actually the only part of that finale I actually liked. Okay. When they showed all the different ships at the end. That was literally like the only 30 seconds of that episode I really enjoyed. Fair enough. (laughs) I think that could have been a good, like a passing the torch effect where Spock starts it and says most of it. And then about two thirds of the way through, you fade over into Chris Pine who finishes it up. And then the ship warps out of view with Chris Pine in command. When Spock Prime first met Kirk in the ice cave on Delta Vega... 
did he actually give him his torch? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been really cool if they did. Unfortunately, I don't think they did. They had Spock was holding it. And then they cut to the next scene where they're sitting around the campfire and nobody has a torch at that point. So they did not literally have Spock pass his torch to Chris Pine. Man, missed opportunity. (laughs) While we're on Leonard Nimoy's place in the movie, I think we should also mention briefly someone else who really, really wanted to be in the movie. No, he didn't. Didn't he? I'm talking, of course, about Mr. William Shatner. They wrote a scene for him, and he refused to be in it. My impression, based on what I've read, is that he wanted a bigger role. You know, he would have wanted to be important to the movie. He didn't want the cameo scene that they had written for him. There was a scene that they wrote to have at the end of the movie when Spock and Spock are talking, and young Spock doesn't quite believe that he and Kirk will have a friendship that will define them both in ways they don't yet realize. And so Spock shows him a holographic recording that Kirk made for him before he left to inaugurate the Enterprise B. And and so there's this one scene with William Shatner, just as, as a pure nostalgia hit, and to reinforce their friendship to parallel with young Spock and young Kirk's friendship. But... My impression that I had was that Shatner wanted to be in the movie, but he didn't just want a cameo. Well, Shatner wanted the movie to be about him. Well, sure. He didn't want the movie to be about Chris Pine. Shatner... That, that was what I always heard, too, is that he, he wanted a bigger role in the movie. Yeah. Well, I think Shatner was put off that they were recasting him in the first place. And so he objected to that from the get-go. And so then when they later wrote up a scene for him to be in the movie and offered it to him, he turned it down and he badmouthed the movie left, right, and center until it turned out to be really super popular. And then he sort of turned around and said, oh, hey, it's all Star Trek. It's okay by me. But (laughs) In fairness, I would have loved that scene that Glenn just talked about. I think that was really cool. Yeah, I've actually, I've read that scene, like a synopsis of it, and the speech that the holographic Kirk gives in this birthday greeting, and I really like the scene. I think it would have been great. I remember at the time in 2009 sort of scoffing at it, like, oh, you know, William Shatner needs to get a grip on himself, and he shouldn't be so full of himself. Star Trek is bigger than just him, and, you know, let him move on with this new series and stop being such a grump about it. And uh, I'm glad he's not in the movie. He's too old to play Kirk anyway. But then I read this scene and I was like, damn, that would have been really fucking cool. I believe your comment at the time was that you weren't sure if Shatner could still play Kirk or if it would just be Denny Crane in a red uniform. That was what I was afraid of. That William Shatner was so far into his performance as a parody of himself that he couldn't go back to playing Kirk. Plus, he looked very obviously 20 years older than he had looked the last time he played Kirk. True. I mean, Kirk died in 1994. William Shatner was obviously 15 years older than Kirk was when he died. So that would have been, again, something to overlook. Although, for a good scene, you could overlook it. And... Like I said, I I don't remember it now. I haven't read it in a long time. But I remember reading it and going, wow, that would have been really good. It was all about Kirk talking about his friendship with Spock and how, 
you know, how they've supported each other and been friends with each other and how they've bridged the cultural divides and the racial divides. And it talked about how, you know, it was like a symbol of how the Federation did those same things between worlds and whatever. It was it was really fucking good. I, I, re I would have liked that scene. I would have liked to see that speech delivered over like a nice montage of... Starfleet cadets going around and the Starship crew going back to the Enterprise or whatever. I think it would have worked really well. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I bet that in hindsight he, he regrets it for a lot of reasons. It would have been another chance to be on screen with his friend one last time. So um, I, I, that's one of those missed opportunities for sure. Because that, that, I had never heard that until Glenn just mentioned it. And that sounds really cool to me. Yeah, like I said, I was very dismissive of it until I actually read the speech that Holographic Kirk would have given, and then that completely turned me around. Let's talk a little bit about the villain and villains of this movie. This is a place where there are a striking number of parallels to Nemesis, the last Star Trek movie that failed. We have the Romulans back... We have someone coming from Romulus bent on destroying Earth. We have a vengeance storyline for him that feels rather undercooked, I think. We've drawn the parallel to superhero movies a lot in this show, and I think just like a lot of recent superhero movies in which the villains feel a little underdeveloped because the movies concentrate so, so much on the heroes, especially in their origin stories, which I'm not criticizing, by the way. It's just a particular decision made in writing and developing a movie. Sometimes the villains feel a little underdeveloped, and I think Nero, as played by Eric Bana in this movie, whom I came to know, was it later in the 2009 movie season, or was it 2010 when The Time Traveler's Wife came out? Yeah, it was definitely, I don't know if it was the next year, but it was definitely after this movie. Right, it's just that in retrospect, Nero to me is the time traveler. You know, the one with the wife. <laughs> um, doesn't get a whole lot of meat to work with in this movie. Uh, Greg, what do, you, what do you think? Do you think I'm, uh, I'm right that he's a little underdeveloped, or what do you think of his character? I think that in some ways you're right, because we really don't get to see much about who he was or, or hear much about who he was before his planet was destroyed. Because basically... He himself describes himself as a very uninteresting, bland individual before his planet exploded, and now all of a sudden he's a maniac who wants to not only extract revenge on the person who destroyed his planet, but to destroy seemingly every other Federation planet until only his planet remains, which seems a bit of an extreme reaction, but it's interesting. Cause I, I liked him as a villain because... Um, I think that in that movie it would have been hard to fit a whole lot more in into, without making the movie too long. Definitely. So I was okay with the choice. One weird note on this. I've seen Eric Bannon in a lot of things. Uh, the first thing I saw him in was the Hulk movie from 2002, the Ang Lee one. And I had no idea that was Eric Bannon until the end of the movie when they rolled the credits. To the point where I didn't even believe it when I read the credit. I was like, that was not Eric Bannon. Whoever did the makeup on him was incredible because I couldn't tell it was him underneath all the makeup and the and the prosthetics and whatnot or whatever effects they used on him. But but yeah, that's just a side note. But as a character, 
they had to make the choice to focus more on telling people who Kirk and Spock in particular were. So the villain necessarily wasn't able to get the kind of backstory that I would like. But as a menacing villain and as a – at least they gave him a motivation for why he was behaving like a maniac. But um, it could have been worse. I'll put it that way. And like a couple of the other actors in this movie – who make the most out of a few opportunities to shine. I think there are a couple of line readings that Banna has in this movie that are kind of interesting. When he first speaks to Captain Pike on the Enterprise, when they arrive at Vulcan, he greets them with a nonchalant, Hello! Which reminded me a little bit of Christopher Lloyd's line delivery that we talked about in our Star Trek Three podcast, yeah. when as the menacing Klingon commander, he got hailed by Captain Kirk and said, put him on screen. I was really yeah. reminded of that when Nero introduces himself by saying, hi, Christopher, I'm Nero. <laughs> yeah, it's, that was really interesting. That's a great parallel. It's just a really yeah. interesting spin to put on a typical line. And also calling him Christopher rather than Captain or Captain Pike or whatever. What it does is it sort of subtly reinforces his insanity. Because we're so used to people's interaction over the communicator that we know how you're so quote-unquote supposed to talk over the view screen. And the fact that he's not doing it sort of shows he's a little bit off kilter. And it also shows how dismissive he is of his enemies. That he knows his ship is so massively overpowered compared to theirs that he doesn't have to bother with any of the niceties. He could just obliterate them whenever he feels like it. Yeah. So he can treat them however he wants. Yeah, and all he's doing is kind of scanning the screen to figure out where Spock is. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Otherwise, though, he does get a lot of cliched villain background. You know... Well, his wife is fridged just like Spock's mother is. Yeah, his his wife and child are retroactively fridged. Sort of the bog-standard villain background. I'm getting revenge for my wife and child. Yeah. Or the bog-standard hero background. It can be spun either way. Yeah, true. Uh, right before he pulls out the um, Centaurian slugs now. Hmm. Uh... Well, Nero is, to an extent, another entry in the long long line of Star Trek villains who they try to build up to be the next Khan and just never, ever, ever live up to the hype of trying to be the next Khan. Including the next Khan. Including the next Khan. Oh, indeed, we'll get there. I like that (laughs) that Nero, when he's telling the story about how after his wife died, he, he lost touch with everything and focused solely on his vengeance... And he mentions, I forget the exact line, but it's close enough to the quote that I noted it down in my notes as, Nero forgot the taste of bread, the sound of trees, the softness of the wind. (laughs) (laughs) And on the one hand, that may be a sign of clinical depression, that he's sort of not noticing these small comforts anymore. You know, he's sort of numb. That is a sign of depression in many cases, but also it's just so close to the Gollum quote that it distracted me. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Also, the Romulan ship comes through 25 years ago because it destroys the Kelvin on the day of Kirk's birth, but none of these Romulans have aged in the past 20 years while they've been waiting around. Well, Vulcans are a long-lived race, and Romulans as well. 
Yeah, but still, 25 years. Spock aged between the original series and Star Trek VI. Well, yes. <laughs> Spock aged between the original series and Star Trek VI, but Tuvok didn't age between Star Trek VI and Voyager. That's true. Mm. And so, with the Romulan storyline in this film, we get a large, large amount of action. There, it's Action Jackson in this edition of Star Trek. Which, Scott, we have spent the last several podcasts variably complaining and whining about the way that the next generation got crammed into an action movie formula. And now we are in a Star Trek movie, now with the original series crew, and now in this alternate universe and everything, where, where they're all young and hot now, that is very much a modern blockbuster action film. And so I feel that we have to account for the fact that we like this one. There's two main reasons behind this. A, as we covered at the end of the Nemesis episode, whatever you're going to do, you have to be good at it. If you actually do something well and make it good and make it entertaining and make it engrossing, then you won't get slagged for it quite as much. And so that's a big difference between this. That's why First Contact doesn't come into that much criticism over that, although I kind of feel that way. The other thing is that the two series are so different. The original series was the action-packed fist fight at the end of the episode series. The Next Generation was not. The Next Generation was about different problems. It was about espionage. It was about diplomacy. It was about scientific questions. It, it was about all these other things. It was about morality and ethics. It was, it was about all these other things, not just there's a bad guy and the captain has to beat him up. The original series was about there was a bad guy and the captain has to beat him up a lot of the time. And so a lot of the original series movies were about there's a bad guy and the captain has to beat him up. And we didn't really criticize them for that because it flowed naturally from the original series. The next generation film ethos of there's a bad guy and the captain has to beat him up doesn't flow from the next generation series because that's not what the next generation series was all about. Now that we're back with the original crew, we're back going off the original series and... It makes sense that the movie is about there's a bad guy and the captain has to beat him up because that's what a lot of the original series was about. It feels more natural with the original series crew than it did with the next-gen crew because the next-gen TV series wasn't about that. Also, they're all decades younger. Patrick Stewart, we went through, was in his, like, 50s when he's making those movies. Chris Pine is in his 20s or 30s. All these characters are so young, it, it feels more natural for them to be running around and action scene to action scene. Greg, I know you are an aficionado of action cinema. Yes. Where would you say that this movie fits in alongside other big-budget blockbuster action movies of the time? I think it slots very high. If you're, rank, if you're ranking them in that era, in that sort of latter half of the first decade of the 2000s era, the action is very crisp, it's very fluid... For the most part, the fights tell a story, which is a big problem with a lot of fight scenes these days. What I like about the action in this movie 
is they don't let the action overwhelm the character moments so that you you feel like you're invested in these characters so you actually care whether they win the fight which is a big big thing that you have to have it has to look good it has to sound good and the sound in this movie is incredible in the action scenes but you also have to feel for the people that are taking part in it and i thought they did a good job of doing some scenes where for instance kirk is fighting the romulans on the ship near the end and he almost slips off the platform when he's thrown down. And there's actually that tense moment where you're like, oh, man, I hope he doesn't fall. And it's little little touches like that. And uh, J.J. has proven, I think, at this point that he knows how to direct an action scene and direct it really well. In fact, one of my few criticisms with Force Awakens is I actually could have used a little more on the action side at times. But, yeah, I, I really – I think Star Trek 09 is one of the better action action flicks of that – you know, 2005 through 2010, five-year period. There's one point you made that really struck me, and that's that the action scenes helped tell the story. I'm thinking most egregiously of the dune buggy scene in Star Trek Nemesis. What story (laughs) is being told by that scene other than Patrick Stewart is having a midlife crisis and wants Picard to drive a dune buggy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that scene doesn't tell you anything about the characters or about the storyline or about what's coming up later. Whereas the action scenes in this movie, they're all contribute to telling the story. They're not there just to have an action scene with the possible exception of the one creature fight on the ice planet Hoth. Yeah, that's <laughs> the one scene that I would say feels really arbitrary. I mean, that scene is really only there to sort of force this happenstance meeting between Kirk and old Spock. Right. And, and I also thought on on this rewatch, I also thought that that was the only action scene that didn't look good. I didn't think the CGI on the monster looked very good compared to the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's true. Also, for, for all the criticism that this movie gets from some of the old-line Star Trek fans that it's too much like Star Wars, that creature did look an awful lot like a Star Wars creature. <laughs> and there was even the there's always a bigger fish moment, where Kirk is chased by one monster that's eaten by an even bigger and scarier monster. Oh, no! Yeah, that is the one action scene you can say is just sort of plopped in there without a really good story motivation, other than, like I said, just to get Kirk to run into Spock. But Which they could have easily done by, by just having Kirk wander through the wilderness, and he's exhausted and tired, and he sees this cave, and he wanders into the cave, you know? It could have, you could have done. You could, they, Spock could have just as easily saved Kirk from exposure rather than from this monster. Yeah, right. from exposure, from an avalanche, whatever. So that is the one scene that you could quibble with, and I and I would go along with that. But other than that, all of the various action scenes, they do propel the story forward in a way that a lot of the action scenes, in, again, I'm thinking most egregiously of that dune buggy scene, that really didn't propel the story forward in any meaningful way. Yeah, even the ship battles told the story that they were trying to tell, whether it be the fact, I love the fact that Nero's ship was freaking enormous. Uh, I just love the scale of it compared to the Enterprise. Um, yeah, they do a really good job of showing that right at the beginning because they start off the camera really close up to the Kelvin 
and just run it off over almost the entire length of the ship to show you how huge this massive ship the Kelvin is. And then literally, like, two minutes later, the Narada shows up and dwarfs the Kelvin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked some aspects of the space battles in this movie. And also a lot of the space shots in this movie. I think there's a better understanding in this movie of the three-dimensionality of space and the fact that there's no up and down in space than Star Trek had ever really exhibited before. There, there are shots where you see the ship, quote-unquote, upside down on the screen, where we see the view screen and, the, and then the camera, quote-unquote, kind of turns. Um, I think those were really nice touches. Well, it's a lot easier to do now that you've got all CGI, and it's fairly advanced CGI compared to where they were in the late 90s. Yeah, definitely. And back to the action scenes a little bit, I do like, as I said, that Kirk is continually getting his ass kicked in this movie. You made note of this, much like I counted how many times Picard got knocked down the mountain in Generations. You made note of everyone that kicked Kirk's ass in this movie. He gets his ass kicked in the bar by Cupcake and, on, and his team of meatheads. He gets his ass kicked on the drill over Vulcan before Sulu saves him with his sword skills. Including, by the way, a classic Star Trek fistfight move, the worst back body drop in the galaxy. <laughs> yes. See, I disagree with you there. I think it was a perfectly serviceable back body drop. It did almost send him off the lip of the drill, so you have that point. Yeah. We can at least agree it was a back body drop and not a back body drop. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. It was not a back body drop. No, no, no. It was sort of off-center. He sort of dumped Kirk off to the side rather than straight over his head. But it did the job. I suppose. He also, of course, got his ass whooped by Spock on the bridge when he, you know, insulted his memory of his mother, which is a classic way of getting your ass kicked. You can make the argument he did that on purpose, but... True. Oh, I definitely did that on purpose, yeah. And then got his ass kicked again by Nero, and then got his ass kicked again by Nero's flunky sidekick. But he did get the best of the sidekick in the end. Eventually. And as... almost got dropped off the ledge again. And almost got dropped off the ledge again. You know, he's, he just <laughs> generally kind of sucks at this. Well, he is sort of a hothead that has to be brought down a few pegs. True. I like the Kirk-Spock fight scene on the bridge, though, because they do have a couple of Kirk-Spock fight scenes in the original series when Spock's under the influence of spores or mind control or something, and Kirk has to agitate him into trying to kill Kirk in order to, like, burn off the mind control. And Kirk's, like, desperate because Vulcans are much stronger than humans, and they have stronger, more passionate emotions than humans when they're not under their strict logical control. And so... Kirk's, like, desperately trying to survive this fistfight with Spock long enough to burn through the mind control. I love that they sort of echoed that in the, the bridge fight between Kirk and Spock. I thought that was a really good echo back to the original series. There was a lot of really good echoes back to the original series in this movie, and that was one of them. And I thought it was a great illustration also of how, for all of his foibles and his flaws, the incredible amount of just courage that Kirk has, because... He knows that he's going to get his ass kicked, and he knows that there. He probably knows that there's a good chance that Spock could kill him on accident if he hits him too hard. And he still goes in there and he does it because 
he believes it's for the good of the ship. Yeah, of all the flaws Kirk displays in this movie, he does not lack courage. In fact, you could almost say the opposite, that he's too reckless with risking himself. But he definitely shows nerve and courage in a lot of this movie. Back to the fight scene on the drill for just a minute. Engineer Olsen, of course, has the charges. Why does Olsen insist on being stupid and dying? (laughs) This landing is incredibly ill-thought-out and ill-executed by all involved. Yes. Olsen is clearly the worst, where he doesn't pull his chute nearly soon enough and just goes shooting straight off the platform. He never had, never really had a chance. And they really, they really telegraphed that by introducing him as the first real red shirt in the movie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. Everybody, I remember the people in the theater like laughing when they showed him, and he actually has some like incredibly lame line that he has, and and you're like, oh, this guy's definitely gonna die, <laughs> like almost instantly. Well, they he's show, just so incredibly cocky. They show him as like a bit of a glory hound. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the fight. I'll give some Romulan arse. You know, yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a bit of a glory hound, a bit of a, not a hothead the way Kirk is shown to be a hothead, but just sort of too eager for the fight. Trying not, to show off that it succeed. It's not yeah. tempered at all by caution. And he shows that when he goes way too close to the platform. In a lot of this movie, Kirk is shown as sort of an adrenaline junkie. Where he, he does the bit with the car jumping off the cliff, where he, he he rides a motorcycle. Kirk does a lot of things that are sort of adrenaline junky things, but Olsen is way worse in this scene during the sky jump, where he, he's got to go closer and closer. Everyone's pulling their shoot at like 3,000 meters, and he's got to go to 500, and he just never had any chance of arresting his momentum before he went flying off the edge of the platform. But even Kirk and Sulu, who pull their shoots at much more reasonable altitudes, Kirk almost goes flying off the edge of the thing. Sulu goes flying off the edge and is only because his chute catches on something. And, and, and he has to hit the retract thing to pull himself back up onto the platform itself. And, then, and Kirk manages to not fall off the edge of the platform, but then almost gets blown off because his, his chute catches the wind. And so he almost gets blown off the thing anyway. This entire landing sequence is entirely ill-planned and ill-executed. Nobody does anything right on this drill landing. And maybe that's because instead of sending seasoned security and tactical personnel they instead send the hothead cadet that's on suspension the helmsman and an engineer instead of sending tactical officers security officers are you suggesting that that captain pike might have not exercised the best judgment well i can only assume he knows his crew dynamics better than most i do find it astonishingly weird that these starships are mostly crewed by cadets rather than having like actual crews of actual trained officers maybe he knows that all he's got down in security division is a bunch of other cadets and so why not go with these guys (laughs) nobody has training in any of their fields that they're supposed to be in they're just they're just there i mean the guy at communications already admitted he can't speak romulan Hey, comm officer, can you speak the language of our most deadly enemy? No. 
<laughs> I do speak Tribble, though. <laughs> oh, we all speak Tribble. I can speak French. <laughs> I took a few semesters of Spanish, but that's about it. Hey, con officer, do you know any languages other than English? Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> now, something else that we criticized greatly in Nemesis particularly was the feeling that a lot of the arbitrary action scenes felt like something put in to have them as a level in, in the video game which for Nemesis was never made, so it was just pointless, but whatever. The panels on the top of the drill that blow out huge plumes of flame at regular intervals so that you can shove your enemies into them. To be fair, as much as I like the sequence and as much as I like the movie, that is totally a video game mechanic. Yeah, I agree there. Sure, that's fair, yeah. Although I would love it if there was a video game where you were someone in Star Trek and you could give someone the worst back body drop in the galaxy. <laughs> Program someone with all of Captain Kirk's classic fight moves. The human, oh, the monkey flip, yes. The monkey flip, the human cannonball, the worst drop kick in the galaxy. <laughs> the greatest. I love it. I love this idea. While we're talking about the action scenes, this is more relevant to the later scenes, but... I miss phaser beams. Everything's like little light bullets now. You know, all the phasers yeah. shoot out pulses, and I miss phaser beams. I miss hitting the button, getting a continuous beam from your gun to the guy. That's just, that is an intrinsic part of Star Trek to me that they've apparently just completely left behind, and I, I do miss that. Yeah, that's something that kind of started in first contact, and then went forward from there. Yeah. Um, I think by Nemesis, even the hand phasers were firing little bolts. Were they? I don't remember that. I might not be remembering that correctly. Someone will listen and correct me. I don't remember when they used hand phasers in Nemesis. Picard went two-handed in one scene. Oh, those, those, yeah, okay, those were firing bolts, but those were Romulan weapons, not Starfleet phasers. Maybe I'm misremembering. But yeah, by now, even the hand phasers are firing bolts because... That's how things work now. Every Everything has to work like a real gun. They have to fire bullets. I don't even mind it as much. The the ship weapons and the space battles that, that are firing bolts, I think that actually kind of works. But I really miss the hand phasers firing a continuous beam. Yeah, that's fair. That's just an aesthetic that I miss. Yeah. I guess it's harder to, to do those scenes where everybody misses their shots when it's the straight beam. I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's certainly more difficult to have, like, a hundred shots going off at once. <laughs> yeah, and no, none of which connect. Right. Yeah, I guess, you know, firing five or six quick pulses does look cooler from a certain perspective than firing one beam, even yeah. though, theoretically, a continuous beam would cause more damage than five or six pulses. There's one other thing, while we're on the action scenes, an issue that I'd like to bring up. We discussed in the Star Trek VI show... The scene where Spock extracts information about the conspirators from Valeris. And you made the point, which is common among fandom, I'm not saying this is your original idea, but you supported this idea, that that scene is basically Spock raping and torturing Valeris. In this movie, they're fighting on the Romulan ship. Kirk stuns a Romulan 
one of the Romulans. I was going to call him an officer, but I'm not sure they're all officers. But oh, they're just miners or something, right? Kirk stuns one of the Romulans, and then Spock melds with the Romulan to extract information on where is the red matter and where is Captain Pike. Did Spock rape and torture that Romulan? As you claim, old Spock raped and tortured Valeris in Star Trek VI. Okay. I'll say this much. I wish that hadn't been in the movie. I think that mind-melding, like many things that are often portrayed as very intimate acts, should be consensual. Like, so very many things should be consensual. And I think that having Spock extract information through the mind-meld in that fashion, in the way that it's treated in this movie, is a little flippant. The particular language I'd use, I'm not sure, but I wish that hadn't been in the movie. This movie treats it much more the way I saw the original scene, where it's just an interrogation technique. It's a way of questioning. I think the mind meld is a lot more than that, though. It can be. For instance, earlier in the film, when old Spock mind melds with Kirk... I would argue that there's no particular reason why Spock couldn't just tell Kirk his story rather than communicating it through a meld, that the real reason Spock wanted to meld was to check out this new Kirk and try to figure out what the fuck's going on here. Um, I think that scene served two purposes. It serves a diegetic purpose and an extra diegetic purpose. On one level, it allows the audience, obviously, to see a montage of everything that happened a few years after Nemesis, back in the other universe, but... Also, for the characters, it allows Spock to convey all this information to Kirk in a way that I think would be more convincing than simply telling him. Because when he tells him he's Spock, Kirk is already unbelieving. He is unsure of what he's being told. So I think the mind meld in that instance, which he does get tacit permission to do, is a way of conveying information in a way that's a lot more convincing. Would be the purpose for that, other than just, you know, getting a peek into Kirk's mind. Greg, what do you think about all of these issues? You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting conundrum, because I have to be honest that I, I never really thought too much about it in this movie. It, it, at least, it never really crossed my mind that much, but I, I think that there is a there is an element of invasion. And I, I think that for me, it probably didn't crop up as much because it's much more egregious in, in comic books, which deal a lot with telepaths and uh, especially X-Men comics in particular uh, have run into this uh, exact moral quandary about where is the line of demarcation between consent to mental invasion and non-consent. And what is, what are the ramifications of that? Honestly, I'm not even sure where I fall on it because it's such a deep issue I tend to trust the moral compass of old Spock most of the time. Young Spock, I don't know, but in the heat of the moment, I get it in that in that situation. Were there ways they could have written around it? Sure, but it didn't take me out of the movie or anything. See, I think my main contention is that you can do different things. All mental contact is not the same. You can use telepathy and mental contact to attack and invade and 
engage in an act that could be called rape. This happens to Troy in the Next Generation TV series and then again in the Nemesis movie. Right. But there's also ways of engaging in mental contact that are not that. Just as you can use verbal communication to attack or you can use verbal communication to peacefully extract information. I think you can use the mental contact to do different things depending on how you do it. So you think the mind meld that Spock performs on the Romulan in this movie is a lot more surface level? I don't know if I would say surface level. I would say it's much more unobtrusive. It's merely finding information and learning it rather than attacking the mind in any way or, you know, implanting thoughts into the mind. It's simply a way of learning information. It's a way of questioning without actually imparting any sort of harm. It's not torture because he's not actually harming the person in any way. He's merely extracting the information. Sure, I get that. I, th- I think I, I think I tend to fall more along that line in this in this case. The Valeris situation, I think, is more questionable because she fought it. She actively tried to keep him out of her mind. She actively tried to hide the crucial information. And so there you can make more of an argument that it was an invasion. And then then you're in the argument of, was it justified by the circumstances? Is that sort of mental invasion ever ever justified? Can you draw a line between a mental invasion to break down defenses and extract crucial information versus a mental invasion to implant memories of an attack? That, I think, is a thornier question. We mentioned before the balance that had to be struck in many aspects of this movie between carrying forward elements of the original series and making a sci-fi movie of 2009 that has to be set in the future of 2009. And I want to talk a little bit about a lot of the design elements of this movie because that is one place where there were things from the original series that you can bring back And there are things that you kind of can't. And there are different ways that they played with that distinction. Star Trek in the 1960s was genuinely futuristic. Any depiction of original series era Star Trek now, by its nature, has to be retro-futuristic. But making a sci-fi movie in 2009 that's supposed to be taken seriously still has to be genuinely futuristic from the perspective of 2009. So, there are a lot of design changes that are tough to make in that environment. There's the design of the uniforms, there's the design of the Enterprise, that's a big one. Let's get into those. Uh, Scott, what do you think of the job that they did, kind of serving those different masters and balancing those different needs? I think they basically did a good job. I mean, you could argue with some of the design decisions. I'm I'm not the hugest fan of the Apple Store aesthetic. Yeah. But as long as they're consistent about it, you can make it work. You know, as long as everything looks like it fits together, that's the most important thing to me. And they didn't make the whole thing look like the original series, but they added a lot of touches of the original series. A lot of the sound effects from the original series... Especially the transporter sound effects came straight out of the original series. A lot of the control sounds came from the original series. And also they made the controls 
they had a lot of physical controls. It wasn't all touchscreens. So that does sort of harken back to the original series. Because the later series, Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, everything was all touchscreens. And so having actual physical controls, switches to hit, levers to pull, that is a design aesthetic that makes it feel more like the original series. Even though most of the design looks far more advanced than anything they dreamed of at the time they made the original series. Just having little touches like that does make it feel like the original series. I also really like that they stayed pretty close to the design, the external design of the ship. Again, like with the title font and the logos and everything, they didn't reinvent the wheel. They made some subtle changes, then the cells look a little different, the position of the neck is slightly different, but they generally stayed with the same design of the Enterprise that we've been watching for 40-some-odd years at this point, and I really like that they did that. One of my memories from before this movie came out was when they released the first promo image, like, showing the new Enterprise. It was a still from the sequence of Kirk and McCoy on their shuttle first going to the ship, and I was kind of harumphing about it a little bit because it was new and I fear change. <laughs> if I remember correctly, that first promo shot was from a really unfortunate angle, too. Oh, yeah. Some of the still shots of the Enterprise do not look good, but once you see it in motion in the actual movie, it looks a lot better. I found that yeah. with several of the promo photos. There are certain angles from which the ship just looks awkward, and I think part of that may be as a side effect of CGI design where you don't actually see a model in front of you. You don't see the thing from all different angles as you're working on it. And so you sort of you do a side view and a front view and a top view and whatever. And then once you're done with all of that, you find a particular diagonal viewpoint where you go, ooh, that doesn't look good. Where if you're building a physical model, you would see that during the design process and fix it. Right. So I, I, I was harumphing about it a little bit. And one response that I got on a message board... Greg, that you'll remember. <laughs> One response that I got was, oh, I didn't know any of the ships in Star Trek looked different. <laughs> Which, you know, there's a bit of perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we were saying before, you know, Smarks obsessing over details. Yeah, true, true. That that <laughs> kind of did put that in perspective, and I'm, I'm a bit of a convert now. Again, after seeing it in motion in the actual movie, and... You know, getting one of the toys and looking at it at all sorts of different angles there, too. It's a little more monochrome than the original Enterprise model. Much like the interior design, there isn't as much color to it. The interior design, you call it the Apple Store, it's all gleaming white because the future is bright or something. You know, the, the the outside of the ship, the only color present is kind of a dull blue on chrome or on the gray-white of the hull plating, whereas on the original Enterprise, the, the red nacelle caps really pop. And on the original Enterprise, especially the uh, sort of rotating fan blade of many colors, you know... The original series was vibrant and colorful, and yes, that was because color televisions were becoming more of a going concern and GE wanted to sell them, but it also lent the show kind of its own aesthetic as we see it now. 
And, of course, they couldn't carry all of that forward. They couldn't have trapezoidal doors with random purple walls behind them. But I think the total gleaming white aesthetic and the somewhat more monochrome aesthetic of the outside of the ship... Look, this is a small, small criticism. I just gave you the perspective of someone who doesn't know ships look different, so this is a small criticism. But the monochrome aspect of it, I think, is a little bit dull. I'm struggling to see how the new ship is more monochrome than the old ship. The old ship was almost completely universally gray. It had red and yellow designs on it. It had those nacelle caps that popped. Well, the new ship has the colored lit nacelle caps. Yeah, that's a dull blue and chrome. I don't know if I'd call it dull. Well, okay. Again, small criticism. Uh, Greg, what do you think of the new Enterprise inside and out? Well, first of all, I went through this same line of thinking with the still photos of the Batmobile that came out before the Christopher Nolan Batman Begins, because I was like, oh my gosh, it's so non-sleek. Then I saw it in action, and it was fine, and it served the purpose of the movie and all that. It was kind of the same uh, with the Enterprise here. I, I liked it. I thought it was a cool design. The one critique that I would have is of the interior, because you guys have referred to it as the Apple Store look. And that's kind of something that's almost a bit of a motif in the designs. One of the hallmarks of the original series, and really the entire Star Trek series, is how forward-thinking it was, and how innovative the thought processes were. And a lot of the designs in this movie feel like they're kind of... They wouldn't be out of place in 2009 if that makes sense. Like, the uniforms that people wear, the ship itself, they look like people today, or people in 2009 and today, might expect something like that to look. It's not quite as outside the box. But as far as being true to the series and having an homage that does look sleek and look cool on the big screen, for lack of a better term, I thought they did a pretty good job with that. One design element that I liked, and I know a lot of other people hate, but I liked, and again, sort of addressing the criticisms we've all made about the uniformity of the design and the Apple Store look, a lot of the scenes from the engineering section in the shuttle bays of the Kelvin and in the engineering section of the Enterprise, a lot of those scenes were filmed in, I believe, a Budweiser brewery. And they sort of used the tanks and piping and catwalks and all of that of the brewery to stand in for the engineering section. And I thought that went a really good aesthetic to those engineering scenes. Where yeah. it looked like an engineering plant. It, it, it just felt completely different from the sleek, polished look of the bridge. Which it should. It's an engineering deck. And I really liked that aesthetic. That it looked so different. It looked... You know, oh, we're up on the bridge and we have our controls and this is where people push buttons. But down here, this is where people make the power. This is where people make the ship go. This is where people service the shuttles. And I really liked that. I liked that look for the engineering section scenes. I liked that aesthetic to draw contrast between the gleaming bridge and the sort of grittier engineering section that looked more like an engineering plant. I know a lot of people shadow over that. I'm not sure how much of that was actually because they didn't like the way it looked and how much of it was just people knee-jerk objecting to filming scenes in a brewery and so they were just primed to hate it a year before the movie came out. 
but I really liked that look. I actually thought one of the, from a visual standpoint, the scene when um, Scotty and Kirk beam aboard the Enterprise and Scotty gets stuck in the, the tube things, basically, I thought that was really interesting visually. It stood out from a lot of the more, I wouldn't say bland, but a lot of the more um, same-looking designs in, in, in other parts of the ship. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I enjoyed that. It added a different dynamic in the engineering room added a different dynamic to the overall look of the movie. It looked really different from anything we've ever seen in a Star Trek show on a Starfleet ship before. It looks different, and that's good. The original series engine room is something else that you probably couldn't have brought back. You know, it was probably just a little too basic. At the same time, the tanks in the brewery and a lot of the... Aspects of the brewery sets, quote-unquote, seem a little too anachronistic in a Star Trek movie. I like the catwalks and the sense of engineering as a complicated place, as opposed to the sleek bridge and other parts of the ship, but the brewery just seems a little too anachronistic to me. I don't know. I like the way it looked. Some of the ways they tried to dress it up are fun, like the scene where Kirk is the victim of McCoy's vaccines, which is a great madcap adventure sequence. Oh, that was great, yeah. Uh, and he runs down to find Uhura, and you see, like, light designs being projected onto the front of the tanks, all in a big line. That decision to try to dress them up in that way I thought was fun. That's actually, they weren't even being dressed up that way. That's just a natural reaction to that sort of polished aluminum. Or, or those steel. I forget exactly, but I, I remember reading an article about that. That's just the way the light reflects off of it because of the way the metal is polished and the shape of that part of the tank. That's just the way that light reflects off of it. They just took advantage of it because it looked cool and futuristic. Wow, that's great. I did not know that. <laughs> That whole scene with McCoy chasing Kirk and giving him various vaccines, that's a, a great example of what Greg brought up before, where the action scene fits in, it integrates with the story, it helps move the story forward. It helps tell the story. And it also introduces a bit of levity into the situation, which could have been a rather boring, oh, Kirk goes and talks to Uhura and then they go to the bridge. This introduces a something a little bit f more fun, you know, a couple of jokes. It really integrates well with the story they're trying to tell. Absolutely. They don't just suddenly stop the movie so they can ride around on a dune buggy. Uh, <laughs> we're never, we're never going to stop hitting on that dune buggy sequence. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. This is the, the, the dune buggy sequence will, will never be allowed to rest in peace. <laughs> this is an action sequence which will live in infamy. <laughs> that that horse is long dead, but we're not done beating it. <laughs> That's what we do. That should have been the logo for the Spectacular. <laughs> oh, spectacular, sir. I've been correcting a lot of people on that this week. Imagine a dead horse being beaten forever. What's going to happen is you guys are going to keep the memory of, of that scene alive by beating it into the ground so much and killing it. And eventually there's going to be a new generation that will arise that will now grow to, by proxy, view it as the greatest action scene in the history of cinema. 
Well, what's going to happen is we're going to keep the memory of the Dune Buggy sequence alive so much that someone producing some version of Star Trek in the future thinks, you know, <laughs> oh, this is a classic element of the franchise. We have to have this in our show slash movie. You know what I'll say to those people that try to revive the memories of that Dune Buggy sequence? Leave the memories alone. <laughs> oh... Now, if we've covered the design of the Enterprise, I'd like to talk a little about the design of the Narada. Because I don't understand the design of the Narada at all. Right. How is a Romulan mining ship made up of this giant mass of spines that arc forward? And why does a mining ship have these super-duper powerful torpedoes? And why does the mining ship interior consist of all of these walkways that go up and down and crisscross each other, and none of them have a visible support, none of them have a railing, and none of them seem to go anywhere. It's just a giant chasm with walkways crisscrossing it for no discernible reason. And there's a lake in one room! <laughs> okay, okay, if I'm to put on my redemptive reading cap for a second, the tendrils of the ship might be there because they would need to do a lot of drilling... And so those would be used as drills or something. And they my... have a drill platform for drilling. That too. And uh, obviously miners need lots of explosives. You know, to kind of drill down a little bit and drop some explosive in there. And sometimes they might need to use water to cool their drills if they're not using the big laser drill. And why do they keep the water in four inches covering the floor of the interrogation chamber rather than a, in a tank of some sort? It's been a hard 25 years that ship has been drifting around Klingon space. <laughs> why, why are the walkways so dangerous on the ship? Because usually it's supposed to be full of ore. <laughs> That's what I've got. <laughs> what if we made an octopus into a spaceship? Hmm. Well, actually, Spock's ship from the future Vulcan Science Academy is called the Jellyfish, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why does the Narada look like it does in any way other than, boo, it's scary? Um, also... Why does a Starfleet outpost on Delta Vega look like a rundown warehouse from the 1980s? <laughs> well, if nobody ever goes there, it, I guess you can. It would make sense why it looks rundown. The warehouse went through a black hole from uh, Star Trek IV and ended up in the new continuity. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. That was bugging me for a minute. <laughs> Now, one thing that you were very, very annoyed by, which I didn't mind at all, was that now that we're in the modern era of filmmaking, we have product placement once again. Yes. Okay. Product placement doesn't inherently annoy me, although as a good anti-capitalist, it, you know, really should. The fact that it's so badly dated already... I mean, we have the freaking Nokia ringtone on Kirk's car phone, which is is just... We don't have the Nokia ringtone today, let alone the 23rd century. It's, it's stupid. Although they did presage the whole computer and the dashboard of your car to control all functions that we have more and more now. I suppose. 
Yes, he does have um, hands-free calls. Hands-free calls, the little touch panel controls what song plays, which isn't in a lot of cars now. Yeah, and of course in the bar scene, Uhura is drinking Budweiser Classics. Although, of course, it has to be Budweiser Classic, because now that beer is called America. It is? Yeah, they, they renamed it America. I did not know they renamed Budweiser. Yeah. Wow. I that either. I think it might just be for this summer, or at least the 4th of July. But, yeah, Budweiser is now called America. God, if I'm like Miller, I'm pissed. <laughs> Did they rename all the other beers? Is there like America Dry, America Light Lime, <laughs> America Cranberita? Yeah. <laughs> Are they going to have the America Bowl ad campaign with little bottles of America playing football against little bottles of America Light? Yeah. <laughs> Also, I myself do not drink beer, but many of my friends are beer snobbish in some ways, especially the ones that brew their own, don't you know? Well, then they wouldn't be drinking Budweiser anyway. And and yeah, of course, you know, the line there is, who's drinking America today? Why the hell would people still be drinking it in the 23rd century? Excuse me, don't these people know of hipsters? It doesn't matter how shitty something is. In a hundred years, somebody is going to want to emulate it. Yeah, well, that's fair. <laughs> also, you got to look... I've heard of playing oldies, but he's playing a song by the Beastie Boys that in his timeline would have come out, what, 175 years ago or whatever? Yeah, well, it's still more up-to-date than all other Star Trek cultural references. Because as Glenn has pointed out in previous episodes, generally the most up-to-date cultural reference on Star Trek is Mozart. That's true. In the last couple of movies, they were really pushing it with Gilbert and Sullivan and Irving Berlin. And now we're right up to the Beastie Boys. So it's, it's a real leap forward for Star Trek cultural references. <laughs> well, Voyager got all the way to um, Buck Rogers. I suppose, yeah. Well, the general milieu of sci-fi serials in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. I was thinking more specifically of musical references. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I was not bothered by the ringtone or the Budweiser classic beverage. Neither was really in your face. I mean, obviously they were placed there specifically to be there, but it wasn't like they stood out. It wasn't like the entire movie stopped so you could listen to the ringtone. It wasn't like the entire movie stopped so that three people could spend five minutes talking about how much they enjoyed Budweiser beer. You know, they, they were just there, and it was one line, and then it was done. It wasn't dwelled on. It didn't obstruct the film in any way. I thought, I thought it was fine. If you're going to do product placement, that is how it should be done. A small reference that doesn't obstruct the rest of the movie in any way. Yeah, it, it never... I mean, I'm, I've never really been bothered by product placement anyway. Like, to me, I actually prefer it to when somebody's holding, like, something that just says generically soda on it or something, you know? But, um... Yeah, I, it didn't bother me. I mean, I've seen other ways of approaching that where you come up with your own brand names for things. But, you know, I, I'm not going to begrudge them because they didn't, they didn't take that effort, you know? Well, then I'm really curious to see what a case of America Light Lime looks like. <laughs> okay, before we get out of this uh, design section, let's talk a little bit about the uniforms. Oh, good movie. gravy, the uniforms. Oh, yeah. 
This is something I kept track. You kept track of how many people kicked Kirk's ass. I was specifically keeping track of the uniforms. By my count, there are 11 or 12 different uniforms introduced in this movie. Which is by far the most uniforms introduced in any movie. I think Star Trek II introduced like three, maybe? <laughs> Even Star Trek One only introduced a handful. There are 12 different uniforms in this movie. The Kelvin era, the crew on the Kelvin wears one uniform variant. The Kelvin medics are wearing a different uniform. The red cadet uniforms at Starfleet Academy. The black Starfleet Academy instructor uniforms. The Kobayashi Maru crew uniforms that Kirk and McCoy and Uhura and everyone are wearing in that sequence. The Academy Review Board are wearing some sort of like giant wool over thing. I don't know what kind of uniform that is. And then when they get on the Enterprise, the people are wearing like the regular Enterprise uniform that we've seen since 1966, at least a variation of it. Kirk is, I think, in that same uniform, just without the colored overshirt. Yeah, that, yeah his black shirt is just the undershirt. So that may or may not count as a different uniform variant. But the Enterprise medics are wearing a different kind of uniform. And then the Enterprise nurses are wearing a different kind of uniform from them. And then the spacesuits are color-coded by division. The engineer is wearing red and Sulu's wearing gold. And Kirk, for some reason, is wearing blue. So I'm not sure if those count as a uniform because those are spacesuits. I don't know if we count spacesuits, but they are color-coded by division. Then... At the award ceremony at the end of the movie, the entire front row is wearing a different variation of uniform. And then Admiral Pike is wearing a completely different uniform from anyone else anywhere in the movie. <laughs> That's more different kinds of uniforms than were introduced in the first five seasons of The Next Generation. Which almost co contradicts the term uniform. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some scenes where I'm not positive there isn't another one that I just didn't get a good enough look at. They, they, it looked like there was some variation where, like, the black Academy instructor uniforms where other people were wearing something that looked a lot more gray, but I think maybe it was just a trick of the lighting and it was actually the same thing, so I didn't count it as separate. But, but that's like 11 or 12 different uniforms introduced in one film. <laughs> and they introduce more in the next one. Oh, yeah, yeah, they do. And if you've seen the trailers for Beyond, there are even more now. There is nothing. People complain about the fast pace of the movies. People complain about too much action scenes in these reboot movies, which I'm going to keep calling them even though I've acknowledged them using the wrong definition of the word. No, we've established how you get revenge for all those arguments you lost. But <laughs> nothing matches the pace at which these movies introduce new uniforms. Yeah, true. Maybe styles change even more rapidly in the future than they do now. Now, obviously, uniforms change so often because the Narada came through and blew up the Kelvin 25 years ago. That, that's the point of departure, after all, right? Yes, yes. Well, that's why they have the uh, texture on the Enterprise uniforms, why the uh, Starfleet Delta, which is the Starfleet Delta. Now, that's another thing from TOS that you really couldn't do now, is to have every ship have its own emblem. Yeah, that's not really... You can't do that in anything. Did they even try to do that in Enterprise? Um, they had different patches on the arms of the uh, jumpsuits. That's not... I mean, that symbol is so ubiquitous to come to represent Star Trek, let alone Starfleet, that you can't, you can't have other people wearing different symbols. Yeah, definitely. That's just not tenable anymore. Uh, Greg, what did you think about the uniforms and the costuming in general in this movie? To me, I, can't, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, I think that, like... There were so many of them that it was, it was hard to kind of 
settle in on one to even talk about. But I loved the uniforms they end up with. You know, the classic Kirk uniform, basically, when he comes on board the ship. But I, one thing that I noticed early on in the movie, in, in terms of the uniforms that you see in the in the first half of the movie particularly, it seems like they're filtered towards what will look cool today. It, they wouldn't look out of place, really, to see somebody wearing them in 2009, um, which is something that I, you know, maybe, in, it's hard for me to say because I wasn't around in the 60s, but certainly the uniforms worn by uh, the crew of The Next Generation, for instance, were not uniforms that you would see, or were not clothes that you would see people wear in everyday life hence when they go back in time or do the simulators or whatever they would be wearing contemporary clothing um and in this one it feels like the design the costume designs are all through a filter of yes let's pay respect to the original series but also let's make them look really cool for today and that's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing it's just kind of the 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 approach they went they went for it the i guess if i can make a critique of that it would be that Whatever we think looks cool now is not going to be what people think look cool in 200 years or whatever. So, but I, I lo- they didn't bother me, and I loved loved the last shot of the crew when they're in their more uh, traditional looking garb. Yeah, I agree. I really like the Enterprise uniforms that are the ones that are based on the original series uniforms. I really <laughs> love the way they came out, and of course, the uniform is again used to. Uh, symbolize a little bit of what's going on with the characters because Kirk never has the full Enterprise uniform until the very end of the movie. Yeah, even Scotty gets a uniform. Once they show up on the bridge and they hash out this plan in the scene where they hash out the plan of how to go to the Romulan ship and retrieve Captain Pike, Scotty has a full uniform with the red shirt. Kirk still is in all black. Yeah, Kirk doesn't get that gold shirt until he earns it by some definition (laughs) you know until he goes through everything in the movie and assumes command officially of the enterprise and now it's almost the last piece that this crew is together the ship is together and they're going off on their mission and now kirk has his full uniform yeah that that was very symbolic and, and very appropriate although how funny would it have been if kirk goes through all of this like saves the universe and all this other stuff and then he gets back and Tyler Perry still tells him no you're still suspended because you cheated on the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, he hasn't graduated yet. <laughs> no, it would have been great if he got back and said, "Well, Kirk, in light of everything you've accomplished, we're willing to take you back off suspension. You can return to class on Monday." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and for everything you've done in defeating the Romulans, here's a commendation for original thinking. <laughs> <laughs> We should make note, we went through all the various character things and people they recast and whatever, but we should make note that as the computer voice that argues with Chekhov because the computer can't understand Chekhov through his accent, this is Majel Barrett Roddenberry's final appearance in Star Trek as the computer voice in that scene. This is the last thing she recorded before she died. Right, and it was recorded fairly soon before she died as well. Yeah, I believe she had died by the time this actually opened. Right. And when they film a later scene when Kirk and Scotty arrive in engineering and Kirk has to get Scotty out of the water tube, that computer voice is not Majel Barrett. Right. She died, I believe, between the time that the movie was supposed to come out at Christmas 2008 and the time that it did come out at Mother's Day 2009. She died that December, I believe, and had recorded her line 
for the earlier scene as the computer weeks before, if not days. Now, we're running a little long here. Imagine that, us running long on one of these things. And there is a lot left to discuss, specifically about the score for this film. So we are going to split that discussion off into its own podcast. That alright with you, Greg? Yeah, that would be great if you guys don't mind. Alright, great. Listeners, please look for that on your feeds and sites of choice, directly following this show. So, to wrap up, Star Trek is back... In so many ways, it's actually pretty good, and people actually like it. Yeah, this movie was a huge success. It was the sort of blockbuster that you want your big tentpole franchise action film to be. And which Star Trek had so rarely been. I don't think it really had ever been. So, on that note, on a more optimistic note, for an optimistic future, let us get out of here... But first, some plugs. Greg, what's going on with the Hard Traveling Fanboys and PTBN Comics and PTBN Pop? Well, uh, we are, we the Hard Traveling Fanboys, Nick, Duke, and I, uh, we are putting out weekly content as the Hard Traveling Fanboys. We hit you up uh, with Countdown, which is where we count down our five favorite or least favorite things at a given time. Uh, We do the Rundown, which is talking about the news and notes from the world of comics. We do the Long Book Hunters, where we uh, look at trade paperback or graphic novels that are of interest. And we also do Off the Page, which is where we look at a comic book-related property that isn't a comic book. So sometimes we do movies, we've done games, we've done uh, uh, TV shows, we've done video games, and we're even planning on doing some radio serials, which should be fun. And actually dropping here in the next week or so, we'll be having the Giant Size Hard Traveling Fanboys podcast. This is on every month that has a fifth Thursday, Thursday night being our publication date typically, we will be delivering a Giant Size edition. And this time around, we are going to bring back a two-year, three-year running tradition here at Place to Be Nation, which is the Halfies the Half-Year Comic Book Awards. Uh, Nick and I will be joined by Todd Weber, Russell Sellers, Tim Capel, and newcomer Stephanie Holly as we give out our Half-Year Awards in the world of comics. So be on the lookout for that, gang. Excellent. Cannot wait for those. Is there any place you'd like people to find you on social media? Yes. Uh, you can. The best place to find me probably is just to follow me on Twitter at gphillips8652 which is G-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-8652. That's pretty much uh, my most active social media account these days. So uh, that's probably the best way to find me. You can also hit me up through email if you want to talk comics, wrestling, whatever. Greg P at placetobenation.com. Excellent. And if you would like to find me on the lines, I am at Glennybun on the Tumblr and on the Twitter If you have a question or a topic that you would like us to address in a Star Trek mailbag episode covering any aspect of the franchise, contact me on social media. Find me Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. You can email me, G-L-E-N-N-B, at placetobenation.com. We want to hear from you. If you would like to find any of the previous episodes that we have done on the Star Trek movies 
or anything else that we've done about Star Trek on Place to Be Nation, you can find that at placetobenation.com slash Star Trek. We will be back in two weeks' time with the next Star Trek movie, Star Trek Into Darkness. Thank you, Greg, for being here. Listeners, we will see you then.